Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, my brain's fried here. I'm, I'm, you know, we just got moved into our temporary housing here in Stamford, Connecticut, and trying to figure out the technology and getting my internet set up so that we could do the show. It's, it's been an overwhelming morning, but I think we're good to go. Well, we're excited that you're good to go because we're going to do something that is, uh, I don't know, probably our most requested thing we've ever had. We're going to sit down and watch the invasion pay-per-view from July 22nd, 2001. So yeah, today's exact date all the way back in 2001. Of course, we know at this point, WCW is no more. ECW is no more. It is a one horse race at this point. This is the show that uh, a lot of people have looked forward to for a long time. It's a dream pay-per-view and to my surprise, you've never actually seen this show. No, I never have, and I'm, I'm I'm going through you know the timeline, and I think we've touched on this once or twice before in passing, but it occurred to me when um, I'm looking at the dates here and kind of reflecting back, this might have been the pay-per-view um, where originally JR called me and asked me if I was interested in possibly coming and doing some TV for WWE in early July uh, of 2001. And because I wasn't sure what the storylines were, wasn't sure what they had in mind, and JR couldn't give me any real detail, and because I had a house full of you know family and friends that had come in from all over the country, I declined uh, and actually turned down the opportunity. And now looking back, I'm guessing, I don't know this, but I'm guessing it was probably it had something to do with this pay-per-view and this storyline. Well, I'm sure that, uh, this will be a, a unique exercise. We got lots of great feedback when we sat down and we watched that old Monday night raw the same night that you guys, uh, put the title on bill Goldberg, the WWF presented something a little different, uh, at the end of the show, there was the reveal that it was actually the undertaker dressed up as Kane. Uh, and we were on a collision course then for highway to hell, the theme for SummerSlam 1998 with the undertaker and stone cold. And since then. They've even made uh, an action figure. I mean, since you and I covered that, uh, they've rolled out an action figure of, of Kane dressed up or, or the undertaker dressed up like Kane. But I think a lot of our listeners really dug you sort of giving your two cents on the WWF product in 1998. What was the feedback you got from that episode? You know, uh, it was very positive. Uh, it was definitely, there were, there was a lot of interest and I think it is, uh, unusual, for me to cover the WWF product at that time. So, uh, because it was unique and we had never done it before, I got a lot of, you know, good, good, good feedback. Well, hopefully you guys are going to dig what we're doing today. If you haven't already fire up your WWE network, we're doing this watch along style. So you can uh, enjoy the show with Eric. Who's going to watch it for the very first time. It's two hours and 40 minutes long. Uh, it's under your, uh, your vault section. You can look under pay-per-views WWF 2001. And it's July 22nd, 2001. Eric, this is going to be fun, man. I got to tell you, I'm excited to do this one with you because I know that you've never seen it. And uh, we even took to social media and let fans ask questions. So at various points throughout the show, I'll check back into social media, pull a question or two, uh, and let fans sort of pick your brain. Uh, So fire it up. WWE Network, 2001, July 22nd. Eric's going to give us a countdown. Eric, what will the countdown sound like 
ahead of the countdown. Tell us what you'll say. Ichi ni san. It's Japanese. One, two, three. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, good luck, guys. I hope this works. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so, Eric, whenever you're ready, we'll go ahead and get this thing fired up. Ichi ni san. And we're off. The, uh, the signature here at the time looks pretty familiar. They used this one for a long time. This feels like the classic open. I guess we should give everybody the backstory. You probably know what we're talking about here. Uh, the WWF has now been invaded by WCW and ECW. It was revealed at the uh, very last Nitro that the McMahon who actually purchased WCW was in fact Shane McMahon. And, uh, we're off to the races here now because Stephanie McMahon has taken over ECW and in early July, things start moving pretty quickly. And, uh, we realize we've got an invasion on our hands and the ECW wrinkle is something that uh, I in particular was really excited about because they've even got Paul Heyman here. So it feels kind of authentic, especially compared to the WCW side, which you admitted they've, they've reached out to you here, but you didn't know all the creative and at the time, you know, you, you had other things going on, so it wasn't priority, but I can't help, but wonder how this might've looked or felt different if you were there. Yeah. And I love this open, by the way, they did a fantastic job with this open using, you know, public domain footage, um, from world war two. And, and it's, it's awesome. Yeah. You know, had JR been a little bit more uh, forthcoming, and, and I've said this before, and you know, I'll say it again. You know, full disclosure, Jay and I, JR and I are, are friends now. The past is the past. We've both gotten past all that. But I've got to tell you, when JR called me, he didn't. He he wasn't too excited about it. Uh, he, I think deep down inside, he was hoping <laughs> that I would have passed on the opportunity, and I did. Um, but I, I, I now just looking at this open, I kind of wish I would have been involved in it because it would have been really cool. It would have felt more authentic to to a degree. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a cool open, you know, this era, I think they were using David Sahadi for a lot of their video packages. You worked with Sahadi a little bit in TNA, didn't you? I did. I did. And I loved working with David. He's a very creative guy, very positive guy. I've never worked with anybody that regardless of how much pressure he was under or how badly things were going at any any given moment, he was just, he had a smile on his face. He's a solution kind of problem solving kind of guy. And, uh, he never let the pressure get to him. He's a fun guy to work with. That's something that, uh, we've never heard before, but it is a name we hear all the time. Cleveland, Ohio, man, I think the night that they announced that Vince had taken over WCW, they were in Cleveland, huh? Fitting the signs going nuts. WWF New York right there in times square. Uh, Bruce and I have talked about that restaurant and, and that, that business strategy a lot on something to wrestle, you know, what the idea was and maybe why it didn't work. Uh, I'll check this out. Lance storm. He's going to try to be serious here for a minute. And, uh, Mike awesome. He's no longer the fat chick thriller. He's got himself a haircut and some real trunks. Two of the more underrated WCW performers. Wouldn't you think? Mm, yeah, I would, uh, particularly in the case of Lance Storm. I think Lance had a, a ton of potential that was never realized. You know, he he was challenging because he had he had a very unique type of charisma. Uh, I don't think he had a lot of depth as a character. In other words, I don't think he could be 
comedic in any in any way. He was kind of one dimensional, but he was one dimensional in a very very um, powerful way. So the the character that he did have was was a strong character. I was a huge fan of both of those guys, and they're going to be taking on Edge and Christian here, who we know are going to go on to become Hall of Famers. Uh, Christian not there yet, but obviously he's going to be. They're just probably waiting for the right time. But man, these guys would have huge singles careers and uh of course everybody knows about their tag team dominance that they got started with and two uh of the legit great wrestlers from wcw you know mike awesome had a huge run in ecw and of course jumped ship over to wcw and he was one of my absolute famous uh, favorite performers to watch and i don't think lance storm ever have a bad match i don't think i've ever seen a lance storm botch this should be a good match here yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, and this arguably um, was, I think, Edge and Christians. If not their peak, they were certainly, you know, on an upward uh, trend in terms of their their professional arc. So this this will be a good match. We should remind you that um, there's a lot going on in this show, but the big story, of course, is that WCW uh, had you know reached unbelievable heights like in 1998 they were averaging over 8,000 fans for a house show which is a figure that no wrestling company in history whether it was wwe or new japan even at their peak had ever approached so even at the height of hulkamania way back in the golden age of the 1980s nobody was doing that uh but somehow the wwf manages to beat it when uh, they get on the, the Stone Cold Steve Austin train, they get up to t- over 10,000 fans per house show. And uh, WCW, not to be outdone, runs a, a consecutive string of like 23 house show sellouts. I mean, a sold-out house show, that would be you know headline news today, and they were doing it 23 times in a row. So unbelievable success for WCW and you know, in 1998, their average buy rate was a 0.93 for their pay-per-views. Just two years later in 2000, the average buy rate was 0.17. So WCW, not quite the company it was. It happened seemingly overnight. It just goes to show you, and I guess we we can talk about that and apply it to today as well. Uh, things can change pretty fast in the wrestling business. Well, in any business, in any form of entertainment, whether it's music, movies, television, across the board, you name it. If it's, if it's entertainment, it's it's fickle, you know. Uh, staying on top. I've said this before. You know, becoming successful is relatively easy compared to staying successful. The real challenge is is being able to maintain that success and 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 manage it so that you don't have those dramatic upswings and downturns and, and, and a roller coaster in your business. And it, it is challenging. When you were, um, sort of out of the business here about 2001, you're doing other things. Are, are, how, what, what type of communication do you maintain with Hulk Hogan? Uh, you know, fairly consistent, you know, once or twice a week we would check in, but you know, he wasn't talking about wrestling. I wasn't talking about wrestling. So it was more you know, family, social, what are you up to? What's going on? What's new type of thing? Just general conversation, but not a lot of conversation about wrestling. 
It's just interesting to me because, um, all the newsletters were saying at the time that, you know, he was sending some feelers out, which, uh, I mean, this might've looked totally different, you know, had he been on that WCW side as well. Could have, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not even sure again, I haven't watched this. I, I never watched it. I didn't watch it when it was live and, and I haven't seen it, uh, subsequently, but uh, I'm not sure where Hulk Hogan was at, where his head was at, whether he was with WWE at the time or not. So, yeah, I think had Hulk been there on either side of the the invasion, uh, had I been there, it, it could have been, not to put myself over, certainly, and, and, I'm, and I know I'm not on Hulk Hogan's level, but I think just in terms of the fans' reaction to the WCW invasion concept, had like I said, on one side or the other, had I been involved in that on one side or the other, it would have probably had a little bit more intensity to it, a little bit more believability to it. Not uh, looking at this crowd, it looks like they didn't have any trouble you know, filling the house, and I'm sure the pay-per-view did well. But you know, when you when you don't have you, the the top stars, and when I say stars, I mean the people that spent a lot of time on television. In my case, I obviously wasn't in the ring, but yeah, you know, I, I I kind of represented that brand for you know five or six years, in the eyes of most of the fans. Uh, it 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 would have been interesting. I'm kind of pissed at myself <laughs> for not jumping on board at this point. Well, it's a, it's a fantasy angle, and um, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, used to go to the grocery store with their mom and. Uh, they run over to the newsstands and they would see all these different, you know, after mags and they would have these sort of fantasy matchups of the undertaker and sting and Shawn Michaels and, uh, you know, somebody from the WCW, so Ric Flair or whatever. And so it's sort of fun to, to look back at this and, and wonder what if, and, um, I think it gets a bad rap sometimes because the concept, you know, is what fans were, were craving so much, but. I think if there is a criticism, it would have been that, you know, maybe the timing wasn't right just because they weren't able to secure all the players at the time. Of course, a lot of the WCW guys still had those time Warner contracts. So they were able to just sit at home and, and collect a check or, um, you know, accept less money and go back to work. That's not a deal. A lot of people are willing to sign up for. Well, it, it, it's not a deal a lot of people are willing to sign up, sign up for, number one, and, and you can't blame them. No. It's, it's a business decision, a financial decision, and, and they made probably the decision their accountants and lawyers and wives and husbands were telling them to make at the time. But also, I think there was just not a lot of uh, confidence or security uh, in, in how they were going to be used or what ultimately that opportunity, where it would go in the long term. So I understand it. Um, I agree with you, though. I think the timing was probably not right in terms of this concept really being able to manifest to its potential. No doubt about it. You didn't have Sting. You didn't have Goldberg. Uh, you didn't have so many of the people that really legitimately were the faces of the company, at least WCW um, at that time. So definitely they were swimming upstream in that regard. Mike awesome. Going to the top rope here. Where would you, um, you know, we haven't, you and I haven't spent a ton of time talking about Mike awesome. You know, where would you rank his jump 
from ECW to WCW in, in importance. Uh, and I'm not saying that to be funny. I mean, clearly we know it's not, you know, Hulk Hogan's jump. We know it's not Scott Hall or Kevin Nash, but at the time he was the ECW world champion. And even though you, know, you weren't the world's biggest ECW fan, that's kind of a big coup to get their champion, right? I mean, I'm sure it was to, to a lot of fans. Um, again, it's not that I wasn't, I want to be really clear. Cause I know when we talk about this stuff, um, I, I, I'm sure I give a lot of people the impression that I wasn't an ECW fan. It's not that I wasn't a fan of ECW. It's just that I didn't watch it. I wasn't familiar with it because it wasn't available to me and I wasn't focused on it. So I didn't really know where Mike awesome was on the food chain in ECW, because again, I just wasn't really watching the product. Um, and it's not because I wasn't a fan of it. It's just because I wasn't watching it. I had my own stuff to worry about and watching or trying to find ECW wasn't high on my list of things to do uh, on any given week. So I, you know, it's hard for me to, to rate, you know, where awesome was in regard to the, the jump and what it meant because I didn't really know how to quantify or qualify his importance in ECW at the time. But I, I can tell you that, you know, Mike was a very consistent uh, performer. He was an easy guy to work with. Uh, he, he, he was committed to, to whatever he was doing and, and, and extremely professional. And I think in that regard, anytime you, you have an opportunity, and there were others that came over from ECW that fell into that same category. They were all unique and they're all different. You know, these are big personalities and great performers and they all had their own unique uh, characteristics and quirks, both in the ring and out of the ring. But Mike was a, you know, he was a steady as you go, as he goes kind of guy, you know, you could just always depend on him. You know, we're talking about July, 2001, um, you, you didn't watch the pay-per-view. Were you keeping up with anything that happened in wrestling at this point, or are you totally divorced from it? No, I, I was totally divorced from it. I, I, you know, I went through a period, you know, after the, the WCW, um, sale, the fusion media deal with Turner broadcasting fell apart. I, I, you know, not because I was emotional about it or I was, my feelings were hurt or anything like that. It was just, you know, all right, you know, this, this business is now in my rear view mirror. What do I do next? How do I take what I've learned, take the experience I've had good and bad, uh, and, and leverage that into new opportunities. There was no reason for me to keep looking in my rear view mirror because I didn't think uh, there was ever going to be an opportunity for me to get back in the business. There was only one place to work at this point in 2001. That was the WWF. Um, uh, aside from the call from JR, which was a fairly half-hearted attempt to judge my interest, uh, I didn't really believe there was any opportunity for me to really get back in the business. So I was more focused on going forward, not looking backward. I know this sounds weird and I, and I know it's something we don't normally talk about a lot, but I think your son was probably like 16 or 17 years old when this is happening. Is he still watching wrestling at this point? Does he say, Hey dad, you got to see this or did you hear, or is Garrett not really into wrestling at this point? No, he was. Um, and he was watching it. Uh, I would say not, not as much as he did, obviously when, when I was involved in WCW, 
and he was backstage and at a lot of the events and knew a lot of the guys. Uh, but you know, he was watching it, but he also knew that I was, like I said, I was moving forward. I wasn't talking about wrestling. I wasn't, you know, it just wasn't, it just wasn't a part of my life. So when he did watch it, he didn't really bring it up to me much. I just think that's gotta be, you know, as a fan listening to this and, and this may not make sense to you, but I'm sure it does to a lot of our listeners. It's gotta be weird. Like to see essentially your dad's creation played out here on camera and you're going to watch it in the other room and then like not talk about it to him. Yeah. I, I guess it would be a little bit like, um, yeah, I've never experienced this, but I'm going to try to imagine what it would be like. It's a little, a little bit like getting divorced and, you know, the kids have <laughs> spending, spend a weekend with dad and then spend the next weekend with mom. And, you know, you don't really come back and say, Hey, guess what? Dad and I did this weekend. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. I love it. Yeah. So it was probably like, probably more like that. So we see uh, William Regal here. Uh, talking to Vince McMahon and, uh, the first match came to an end edge and Christian got the win over Mike Awesome and Lance storm, uh, Lance storm is the guy. Yeah. This is what we're doing next on this invasion pay-per-view, a battle of the referees, Nick Patrick versus Earl Hebner. Look at the, shows. and if you, if you're watching along, you can see the look on Nick Patrick's face and it's classic, you know, classic wrestler face, you know, scrunched up lips, very stern look. <laughs> Earl Hebner. Earl was a funny character, man. I dug. I, I liked working with Earl. The uh, the reason I bring up Lance Storm again, he's the guy who really kicks off the invasion in late May. I think they're in Tacoma, Washington. I think that's right. And uh, he slides in the ring in a raw and uh, throws a super kick. And there's the whole hey, he's not supposed to be here. What's he doing here? I don't know why, but I found that a little weird. Like of all the guy and don't get me wrong. I love Lance storm. We, we can't say enough nice things about him here on the show. I don't necessarily, I didn't normally like look at Lance storm and say, oh, that's Mr. WCW. I mean, of course we know that's where we'd seen him most recently, but I mean, I, at that point in my wrestling fandom, I associated him as much with ECW as I did WCW. It feels like yeah, he was a, he was a very low profile talent, and again, not not this has nothing to do with his talent or his abilities, but uh, a timing is what probably led to this statement more than anything. But he was a very low profile talent in WCW. He hadn't been there very long, and while he was in WCW, he certainly wasn't involved in anything that I would consider to be really high profile. So it is a unique choice in some regards, but I think in other regards, they were looking at him in terms of his work rate and his ability in the ring. And when you look at all the available WCW talent, I mean, by that, I mean, talent that was available to WWF at the time, at this time, uh, probably Lance had some of the best work rate uh, of oh, any yeah. of the talent, yeah. talent available. It just feels like to me, if you're going to sort of have a, a first shot across the bow, if it's with a more, uh, I guess we'll say heritage WCW character, whether that's Booker T or that's diamond Dallas page, I think of those guys, I think of sting Goldberg, those guys, you know, those are WCW through and through maybe not so much with Lance storm. So here you go. We've got a uh, Mick Foley out here. He's all set to uh, referee this referee match. <laughs> he comes out wearing a jacket that I think he made himself. 
Yep. If if he didn't, it sure looks like he did. It's awesome. Mick is such a character in every way. What do you think of And the, look uh, at Nick look at Nick Patrick coming out just as <laughs> What a character. He's so serious. Charles Robinson, awesome. And Charles Robinson looks exactly the same today as he did in 2001. I don't know if you saw, but um, this last week, uh, the internet melted down over this new face app. And Charles Robinson posted his face app. And he clearly gets the joke we've been telling here on the show because his before and after photo were the exact same. <laughs> I, I want whatever he drinks. Well, I don't know that you do. Earl, Earl, the Pearl Hebner. He looks serious. Earl looks really, he's, he's into this. <laughs> this is silly as hell. <laughs> this is, this is highly entertaining. It's unbelievable uh, that this is the second match on the invasion pay-per-view. I mean, it does feel like, you know, of all the dream matches you could put together, the ones the fans are clamoring to Nick Patrick, Earl Hebner. And Earl takes a slap to the face. He's selling a boot to the midsection and then takes Nick Patrick back into the corner boots by Hebner into the midsection. Nick Patrick is down. Hebner is going crazy. Mick Foley there to make sure this is a clean battle as Hebner grabs him by the boots cover one, two, oh, and a kick out. Patrick just about lost it here. And now Earl is just going batshit crazy. Patrick reverses it. Now it's Patrick on top, using his weight advantage, firing right to the side of the head of Hebner, and now a reversal. Earl Hebner gets it back, putting boots to Nick Patrick. As Nick Patrick is against the ropes, out goes Hebner. Patrick grabs him by the belt, throws him through the ropes, and we've got a break in the action. And we're going to have a referee battle royale here if <laughs> McFoley isn't able to, to get this. It looks like a herd of zebras here on the ring apron. Oh, my goodness. Patrick, again, putting the boots to Earl Hebner. Hebner in the classic black and white stripes. Nick Patrick in a white shirt. Polo kind of gimmick. Looks ridiculous, but there you go. Oh, nice right hand. Earl Hebner firing back. Big forearm to the side of the face. And again, Hebner putting the boots. Now goes up to the second rope. Right hand, another right hand, another right hand. Three, four, five, six, seven right hands. Nick Patrick is in a world of trouble here as Mick Foley looks on. Now Nick Patrick stumbles down. He's on his knees. He's trying to get his wits about him. Fires back with a clubbing forearm to the shoulder blades. And off the ropes. Nice slide. Out goes Hebner on the mat. And now the WCW referees, including Charles Robinson, how the hell did they ever hire him after that move? Anyway, the WCW referees putting the boots to Hebner and the Zebras, along with Mick Foley, come in to make the save. That's Hebner's kid. What the hell? Brian Hebner gets thrown. Now Foley taking control here. Teddy Long in the middle of things here, trying to keep some control. Mick Foley throwing... 
Hebner back into the ring. Mick didn't even bother to tie his shoes. Are you, uh, are you trying out for that new, uh, SmackDown announce job here? What's going on? No, I just get excited. No, you I did forget. a good job. It was, it took me back to Nitro. It, 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 ooh, nice shoulder block tackle down. Go a two count, three count. Did he get it? He got it. He got it. Earl Hebner defeats Nick Patrick. Definitely the highlight. Of Earl Hebner's career. No, maybe not. I think the Bret Hart was the highlight of his career. <laughs> He's still living off that. He's still signing autographs to this day because of that. Next up, we're going to have a, uh, a match for the tag titles, the WWF tag champs versus the WCW tag champs, which in theory seems like a home run idea. It's going to be the APA for and Bradshaw in there with Chuck Palumbo and Sean O'Hare. Before we get there, though, Nick Patrick has a few words for Mick Foley. Come on, Nick, knock him out. Come on, Mick. Don't take any crap from, from him. Just knock him out. Well, Nick Patrick's not in a spot in his life where he can complain about fast counts or slow counts, as we know. No, really. He is. No, no. There we go. I knew it was going to happen. Down goes Patrick. Down goes Patrick. My favorite is there's a sign across from the hard camp that says we heart Nick Foley. N I C K <laughs> Nick. That's a weird way to abbreviate Nicole. And Patrick is now getting a taste of Mr. Sacco. Is that what he called it? That's what he called it, right? Mr. Yeah, Sacco. you nailed it. Look at you. I got, and in fact, I was on the receiving end of that once or twice myself. I was going to ask if you had to take Mr. Sacco. Did you get, Yep. Uh, JR's told uh, us before that there were two versions of the mandible claw. There's the versions where he actually puts his fingers in your mouth. And then the version where he just folds the fingers in front of your mouth, uh, to sort of take care of you. Did you get the, the working Mr. Sacco or the real Mr. Sacco? I got the working Mr. Sacco. <laughs> Thank goodness. What are we watching here? This is porn. No, it's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) this is tough enough, which was, uh, I guess the first wrestling reality show. And it was on MTV where these guys were all vying for their spot in the WWF. And we know Maven would win and would go on and eliminate the undertaker from the Royal rumble in January of 02 in Atlanta. That's his really sole footnote, but. The man who helped spearhead CTE and, uh, that entire study, uh, came out of that, which I think, you know, the, he had a brief run in the WWF and, um, we're talking about Chris Nowinski, of course, but he, he was portrayed to be the first Harvard graduate in the history of the world wrestling federation. But then he'd go on to really, uh, spearhead what we know about concussions now. Uh, he's the executive director of the concussion legacy foundation. So lots of good came out of that, but then maybe some not so good. I think that's where Josh Matthews first rose to prominence. Josh is a nice guy. I'm busting balls. Send your hate tweets to me. Hey, hey, it's Conrad. <laughs> Didn't Miz come out of, uh, come off MTV as well. Absolutely. Tough enough. Same deal. And he's still, and he, and I mean, look where he is today. Yeah, That's no, pretty amazing. He is the, it's, it's weird that he didn't win. He definitely should have won. 
but uh, he got the last laugh. I mean, all Argu- I think arguably you could say he indeed did win. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no doubt. He's certainly what a heck of a career and a, and a great talent. I mean, really, he was here. Miz was here uh, in WWE when I came in 2002. And, you know, I know he was a good talent. He was a solid talent. But, man, if you look at how far he's come, he, he really is quite amazing. He does a great, great job. We see uh, the skit backstage with uh, The Undertaker's wife and um, Deborah. We've talked a lot about Deborah on some of the other programs, but not a ton here with you in 83 weeks. What was working with Deborah like? Um, you know, I got along with Deborah really well. Um, when, when she was with Steve McMichael, uh, we, we hung out quite a bit, you know, after the shows, uh, Deborah and my wife, Lori, you know, got along really well. She was really great to my kids. Uh, she, she and Janie Engel and Janie was very close to, to my family you know, spent a lot of time together. So um, I had a pretty good relationship with Deborah. She was easy for me to work with. We, uh, we've talked a little bit about, um, Chuck Balumbo and Sean O'Hare. I've always felt like Sean O'Hare could have been a much bigger star in professional wrestling. And clearly somebody thought that same thing. They paired him with Roddy Piper in the WWF years after this and for whatever reason, it never really took off. Uh, sadly, he's no longer with us. Well, why don't you think Sean O'Hare was a bigger star? You know, it, it's hard to pinpoint why someone never really breaks out to the to, to the level that all the other indications um, would lead you to believe they can. And he had the he had a great look. He was intense. He was believable. Um, I, I think if anything perhaps he just didn't have the range to really break out to that top star status you know if you look at you know top talent you know even today they're multi-dimensional talent they can be intense they can be serious they're believable their work rate is great but their characters their charisma their ability to to entertain you whether it be by being serious and threatening and intense or or when need be comedic uh, or dramatic, uh, you have to have that range. And if you, you've only got one gear or two gears, no matter how well you can perform in those gears, if you don't have the ability to, to find that fifth gear when needed or fourth gear, uh, you, you're, you're pretty limited. And I think if anything that might have been the case uh, with, with Chuck or, excuse me, with Sean O'Hare, um, I, didn't get, I didn't work with him a lot. And, and when I did work with him, it, it, it was pretty limited, but that was my impression of him then. And even looking back now, I, I kind of feel the same way. And there's a lot of talent that are like that, you know, to a degree, we were talking about Lance Storm. Uh, I, I think the same kind of assessment could be made there as well. Amazing ability, great look, excellent work rate, but uh, only one or two gears as a character. And that becomes limiting. I always thought he had, um, a main event style. Look, you know, he, he had, a he, he was tall. He had the build, he had the, the facials. He just had, you know, those things that, you know, as you would say, the intangibles, you know, that you, you look at a Goldberg and you say, well, what made that guy successful, you know, just based on look. And you got to think some of that could work 
in other areas, but for whatever reason with Sean O'Hare, it only got him so far. And then he could do some very spectacular in-ring stuff, the Swanton bomb and things like that. Of course, Chuck Palumbo is going to have a much different experience here in the WWE with him and uh, Billy Gunn. Uh, they're going to be featured in a ton of storylines and have a lot of time here. Chuck Palumbo went on to have uh, a, a pretty interesting career. I believe he lives in San Diego, a serious, serious car guy from from what I recall. In fact, I think he ended up with a show on Discovery uh, or, or one of those networks that specialize in like custom, custom cars or custom motorcycles, kind of a big motorhead. I believe he's still living in the San Diego area. And of course, cool guy, super cool guy, really easy to be around. How much time did you spend with uh, Ron Simmons? You know, a, a fair amount. You know, he was in WCW when I was an announcer there, and Ron was always—I don't want to say fun to be around, but pleasant to be around. He was cordial. He was—he was—he was an easy guy to work with. Uh, he was super professional. Um, so I found myself when I did kind of socialize backstage in WCW when I first got there. Uh, Ron was kind of always in the room where I was hanging out and super guy. And, and I liked working with him in, in WWE as well. And still to this day, I, I enjoy spending time with Ron when I bump into him on the road at conventions or autograph signings or whatever we're doing. He's a super guy. Sean O'Hare is really going to work here. He does have, look at, and he could bump great. What is it? Side suplex. Great, great bump there. Who would have thought, you know, when you watch this match in 2001, that the guy who's going to be the breakout star is Bradshaw. I don't know that I would have picked him at this point as being that guy. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting. That's one of the fascinating things about, you know, being in this industry is, you know, you see talent and it's exciting, you know, because you see talent come in and, and, and maybe in the case of Bradshaw, he'd been in the business for a long time. It wasn't like he was a rookie by any stretch of the imagination, but all of a sudden a character just finds his or her groove. Uh, Steve Austin, the same could be said about Steve Austin. You know, he was Studying Steve Austin at WCW and, and and worked a long time before he even got to WCW, worked at WCW for a long time, went to ECW, came into WWF or WWE, whatever it was at the time, as the ringmaster, and just all of a sudden hit his groove and, and, and just emerged as one of the top stars in the history of the industry. And that's the fun thing about being in this business is it can happen at any time. It's just a matter of of finding that character and, and finding one that just, and some of it is just timing. Some of it is just good luck. We've said this before, you know, you can work as hard as you, you can, you can think about it, you can do everything you possibly can, but if your timing is off and the audience just isn't ready to accept that character, you might not make it, you know, the rock, same could be said for the rock. You know, he just all of a sudden found his groove, found that character, found a way to get that audience to react it, and, and just exploded onto the scene. And it's just that's one of the fun things about this business. And I think one of the things that talent, um, not, not to sound too professorial here, but, you know, what I think is one of the things that talent needs to keep in mind, no matter how frustrating 
it may be at any given time in your career because you're not really hitting that groove, just know that on any given night you may find that moment. The crowd may react to it, and that could be your Stone Cold Steve Austin trajectory or rock trajectory or, you know, you, you name it. You know, there's a lot of guys, including JBL here, that probably was feeling like, I'm okay, this is as, this is as big as I'm ever going to get until something happens and the light goes off and the audience reacts. It's, it's fun. Fun to watch, I should say. I've never experienced it myself, but it's fun to watch. Well, as we're uh, waiting on this uh, double down, oh, here comes the hot tag to Ron Simmons. Uh, chat everybody up. How was your uh, first week back in WWE and the big travel cross country? I mean, uh, well, you know, quite the it, life change, huh? It, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, the, the drive was great. You know, we did, we covered about 2,000 miles, 12 states, uh, stopped in Minneapolis and visited family for, you know, two nights. That was great. Uh, the drive itself was was easy, you know. It's just me, Lori, and the dog uh, in the truck with a five by eight U-Haul trailer, <laughs> with a little bit more than a clothes on our back, and it was it was great. I kind of felt like a college kid again, you know, leaving home and going off to college. Um, getting here was interesting, you know, going from living out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, literally, if you ever came to my home in Wyoming, sometime. You know, you and me, you don't have to get out there, but you, you sit out on our back deck and you're literally looking up, you're looking across the Buffalo Bill Cody Reservoir up the valley that literally leads right into Yellowstone National Park. It's a beautiful, beautiful, you know, scenic view. And we're on 22 acres, but the people around us all have big acreage and there's no houses on it. So it feels like you're on hundreds of acres. And to go from that to, in apartment in downtown Stanford, it was an adjustment. I mean, I literally, <laughs> to, to, to tell you the truth, we got in on Monday night late, right? And I was, I was pretty beat. I was ready to get out of the truck after four or five days. So we pulled up into the, the nicest Marriott that I could find, downtown Stanford, pulled in, got into the room, you know, took a shower, went to bed, woke up about 5.30 in the morning, took my dog out and we're literally in downtown Stanford, like right in the heart of it, took the dog out for a walk and it's like six o'clock in the morning now. And I walk up the hotel and I get down to the sidewalk and cars are flying by me and people are beeping their horns and garbage trucks are going by at 50 miles an hour. I'm going, Holy crap. I am not in Cody anymore. Cause in Cody, I'd get up in the morning and I have my cup of coffee. I'd go out on the deck. I'd let the dog out and like the noisiest thing I would hear would be a bird flying by, you know, or, or a fly buzzing around my head. That was as noisy as it was. And just, just the amount of noise from the traffic was like, wow. And it's not like I haven't lived in a city before. I mean, I, Lori and I lived in downtown Chicago, you know, when we were, we were first dating or living together. Um, so it's not like I haven't lived in the city before, but it's been a long time, but I got to tell you, you know, there's the good, you know, you give a little, you give up a little and you get a little and to be able to walk out of our apartment now and let's see two blocks that way is a sushi bar. Two blocks that way is a phenomenal Italian restaurant. Two blocks that way is a great Mexican restaurant. It's kind of nice. I kind of dig it. I'm getting used to it. 
I'm going to look like Yokozuna by the time <laughs> we do this next year, but it's fun. APA get the win. So, uh, Earl Hebner got the win. Edge and Christian got the win. Uh, APA see, got do the see, win. Do you see a pattern here? I was wondering if you had figured that out yet. Yeah, I think most people did. <laughs> cold coffee in the Sunday morning. Why are you drinking cold coffee? Because I've been sitting here doing this podcast and I can't get up and get a <laughs> hot coffee. <laughs> I wonder what this conversation would sound like today with Vince McMahon and Chris Jericho. Probably, Probably a little different. <laughs> I would think so. Jericho is uh, assuring Vince McMahon how much he hates WCW and how he'd never associate with Paul Heyman. And then he talks about how ugly Paul Heyman is. And, uh, the dirt sheets would say he's laying it on so thick. It almost seems to be intended as a swerve. And there's been lots of, uh, Hence, I guess that somebody is going to be jumping ship here. Next up, we've got uh, Kidman and X-Pac and a non-title clash for the cruiserweight champion and the WWF light heavyweight champion. I think out of all the matches we've had on paper so far, this is the one that probably gets me the most excited Kidman, uh, you know, probably one of the more underutilized talents in WCW and then had that big program with Hulk Hogan. And I think it took a lot of people by surprise. And uh, everybody knows that Sean Waltman for a long time was the measuring stick in the WWF. They'd send you out there with a, send him out there with a new talent. And then he'd report back when he got backstage, is this guy legit or not? So turns out, uh, we're going to have a pretty good match here with Kidman and X-Pac coming up. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, I love Sean Waltman's matches and Billy Kidman is, you know, we've covered him in a couple of the, the previous episodes over the last month or so. I think Billy might've been at his physical peak at this point. But look how young Shane looks there. Look how young Stephanie looks it's right a, there. It's so fun to go back and watch these things. And I know, you know, we all look younger 20 years ago, but it's just fascinating to go back and look at their characters and, and the way they handle their characters 20 years ago, as opposed to the way they handle them now. There's, you know what, talk about irony. You know, one of the other things, you know, after being here for a week, my first week, you know, it was more, you know, orientation, uh, meeting different department heads and really understanding the kind of resources and everything that we have to work with. So it's, it's been a fascinating first week. But I was sitting down and talking to Paul uh, in his office last week, and I, and I said, Paul, isn't this – I mean, Paul and I worked together in 1987 in the AWA. Wow. 1988. And, you know, you just have those moments where you flash back and you realize just how long, you know, you've, you've been associated with each other. And it, it's just fascinating. To, to go back and think about those things and look at those things. But yeah, Paul and I worked together for, with Vern Gagne in 1987, 88. I think he was there even in, into 1989, if I'm not mistaken. He worked with a guy by the name of Rob Russon. I don't know if you've ever heard that name before, but Paul and Rob were in, in the AWA primarily involved in uh, live event promotion. Didn't know that, did you? I did not know that. See, we learn something every single episode. That's why here on 83 weeks, 
we do have the most knowledgeable fan base of any podcast out there, in my opinion. Now, you'd be a better judge since you host probably 30 or 40 different podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably the authority on the subject, but in my humble opinion, um, 83 are the most knowledgeable. No, no argument for me. You know, we get in the weeds and of the always- show. We talk about CPMs and you know, advertising strategies and, you know, just lots of little inside baseball things about the business of the professional wrestling business and the television business specifically that so many other shows don't really touch on. It's more about the creative and, and this, this is sort of fun to go back and do a show like this because we are just sort of talking about the creative more so than the business. So it's a little bit of a change of pace for us. Let me ask you, Conrad, now you, where were you as a fan in 2001? I know that you, you really got into it around 1996, I believe, or 97 was your probably peak wrestling fandom. But where, where was your head at here in 2001? I started to peter out a little bit in 99, but I was still watching and uh, sort of the same in 2000, just a, a, a bit of a decline. And then, you know, I, I was not going to miss the last nitro and, um, I certainly watched that WrestleMania, but after that, it sort of felt like, you know, the thrill was gone. I, I got so, I fell so in love with the Monday night wars and the competition and the back and forth. And it just didn't feel like there was anything I could really get excited about. And then I heard about the WCW invasion and, uh, I checked that out for a little bit at the very end of May and early June. But it sort of lost my interest. And then in, uh, I think it was early July is when they added the ECW wrinkle and I was pulled right back in because I realized they had Paul Heyman and Paul Heyman was going to be a part of it. And I was really excited and encouraged by that. And then they promptly killed that for me when Stephanie McMahon was revealed as the owner of ECW. I felt like Stephanie McMahon owning ECW was the most un ECW thing ever. Uh, but I still maintained like some sort of hope. So I bought this pay-per-view thinking, man, this is going to be it. And then not really being overwhelmed. Now there is one, there's some really good matches on here, but there's one match that I still remember all these years later. And I'm excited for you to see it. It's Rob Van Dam and Jeff Hardy. They have a barn burner of a match. It's the match. I remember the absolute most, but I just felt like, you know, the star power that they needed from a WCW side of things is not here. You know, there's no Steiner brothers. There's no sting. There's no Goldberg. There's no Ric Flair. There's no Scott Hall or Kevin Nash. There's no Hulk Hogan. That doesn't to me feel like there's no Eric Bishop. What the hell? Yeah, exactly. I mean, come uh, on. I, I know people say what I say. People think when I say that I'm just kissing ass, but realistically you were the guy who led the charge. And I think maybe, you know, an angle might've been a different approach here. You know, it's easy to sort of armchair quarterback this now. And I think a lot of, you know, fans at the time are like, Oh, they don't have so-and-so why don't they just get as if the WWF didn't have those ideas. I mean, the people who were making those decisions probably had the same ideas. A lot of us do, but the realities of the contract situation would prevent it from being a thing. And at this point, they're probably looking for a shot in the arm. Their business is down a little bit from years past. I mean, Oh, one is a great year, but creatively you've got to think, you know, what's our motivation competition sort of brings everybody up. And I just felt like this was not what it could have been, but I think it's more of a victim of timing and maybe a little more patience here may have paid off. 
because eventually everybody's going to come over. You know, Goldberg's going to be here. Scott Steiner's going to be here. Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair. They're all going to be here, but they're not here yet. Yep. And, you know, said this a million times and others have as well, but timing is everything. Going back to this match, though, this is a phenomenal match. Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm having a ball watching. I mean, Sean Waltman, he's so good, and Kidman right there with him every step of the way. This is really a fun match to watch. If you're not watching along on the network, I encourage you to go back and watch it for no other reason than this match. This is great. This is the kind of match that I like. I mean, to me, there's story, you know, but not at the expense of athleticism. There's athleticism, but not at the expense of good story and good character. I mean, this is, this is my kind of match right here. What'd you think about, uh, Billy Kidman trending a couple of weeks ago? Did you see just randomly when you were on your trek that he was trending on Twitter and no one could figure I, out why, including him? I, I did not, you know, I, I was in and out of uh, cell coverage and quite honestly, I was trying to disconnect a little bit. Um, when you're in the truck, if you spend too much time looking at your social media, you're, you're not a good travel partner. <laughs> so I kind of left my phone in the glove compartment as, as long as I could. Uh, so I didn't really follow much, but did anybody eventually figure out why he was trending? Oh, no. Well, the reason he was trending is, is Kevin Owens was posting funny pictures of, you know, guys he might potentially beat up or whatever. And so, uh, as he's sliding in all these profile pics, like a collage, so there's like eight different photos, he randomly put like a, an old Billy Kidman picture in there and that got everybody talking and they thought it was great. So it led to like a Billy Kidman love fest where there's tons of clips and gifts of some of his more famous moments or in ring maneuvers or whatever, but it got so popular that he was trending on Twitter and Billy Kidman, I thought had like a line of the day and I'm going to butcher it cause I'm doing it from memory, but it was something like, um, I just saw him trending. I hope that doesn't mean I'm dead or fired. <laughs> Isn't that the truth though? I can see that. Kidman is so good here. And I know, you know, we're taping this on a Sunday and, and obviously tomorrow I'll be uh, headed down to Tampa, uh, to take part in the raw reunion, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, I'm going to see a lot of people I haven't seen in a long time and, and a few people that I've, you know, that I'm still close to, to this day. So it's going to be great, but I'll, I'll, I'll feel like I'm officially back, um, when I get to TV on, on Monday. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a who's who on, uh, on raw this week. I mean, I think Hall and Nash and maybe Waltman and Hulk Hogan. I mean, the whole NWO gang and a, a bunch of other folks stone cold. And it's a freaking who's who at that raw reunion this week. Yep. And of course my first, uh, my very first SmackDown the following day in Miami. So looking forward to that as well. And going to jump into the deep end of the pool and start swimming. Literally the deep end of the pool. It's uh it's so crazy to me that this is a real sentence we're having right now. Is it not? I mean, who would have guessed that this was where we would be a year ago? It's, it's just, honestly, I, I hate to keep talking about it because it's redundant and I've said it a thousand times to myself and to others over the last couple of weeks, but it's still surreal to me. In, in many respects and even more so, you know, just walking around, you know, the offices and, you know, getting my own office and just, it, it's surreal. And it's, it's, 
You know, I, I got to say this, Conrad, and not to keep talking about myself here in the context of what we're watching, but um, I've been excited about things before. And, and certainly, well, what, okay, we have a take a break here. What's everybody seeing up for here? Big move off the top rope. Shooting star press, and there it is. Billy Kidman gets a win. Can you believe it? The WWF lost a match. Holy smokes. But what, as I was about to say, as Billy Kidman, the first WCW win here. Yeah. Outstanding. Um, as excited as I've been at different in, with different opportunities in my life, I've never been as excited as I am now. I mean, it's just... I, I, I feel like a kid again. It's so cool. I'm, I'm so excited about this opportunity and the people that I get to work with. Now you see backstage, the Alliance. That's what they're calling this uh, version of the WCW-ECW relationship. And there's DDP. And in case you uh, are not totally in the loop, uh, Billy Kidman's probably got one of the more interesting angles going on here. Um. He's in the main event. We'll, we'll get there, but it's interesting to say the least. Now I can't hear this. I have the audio down for obvious reasons, but I'm going to have to go back and watch this. You know, once this podcast is over, I just want to hear this promo. And now here we're going to the, the women's locker room. And I think two of the biggest assets in WCW towards the end. Real Todd. Tori Wilson and Stacy Keebler. Oh my. <laughs> Lions and tigers and bears. <laughs> this is uh this is a different era for professional wrestling, is it not? Uh yes. You know, things change. Times change, things evolve, people evolve, society evolves, and certainly we've evolved. And what they're talking well, about here is, is they're, they're previewing their match and they're saying that it's a, it's a shame. The fans are going to have to settle for seeing Trish and Lita stripped, uh, instead of them, because we know that the fans really want us. It's fun because I can't, when I watch a segment like that, I wonder, man, who was the producer on that? Who sort of had to go over the creative Okay, so Tori, what we want you to do is rub your hands over your breasts and then push them together. Like, is that a dude running through that? Because that feels like that would be the most awkward conversation ever to have. I don't know. I wasn't there. Can't comment. Here comes your favorite character in the history of professional wrestling, Raven. Hmm. Yep. What do you think of the dreadlock look here? I know this is going to shock you, kind of like my, you know, Yellow Wolf fandom. But I kind of like it. I kind of like it. I'm going to need to see you. Uh, I, I know you, I know you're a, a corporate guy these days, but one day I'm going to need to see you in dreads. We got to make that happen. Wow. What a match. <laughs> I'm just trying, I think we're going to have to Photoshop that one, brother. I don't have enough hair left to, to, to dread anymore. Um, anymore. Did, are you implying you used to? No, I used to have long hair. But, I mean, did you ever rock that look when you were down puffing the cheek no. in Jamaica with a red stripe or something? No. But, you know, I would have if it would have occurred to me or somebody would have suggested it. So here Raven, you go. The Raven looks like he's in pretty good shape here. This is an odd matchup. You know, Regal and Raven, I kind of like it. 
this is, you know, two two characters on the opposite ends of the wrestling spectrum, as it were. Roy Keller would say that the style combinations sometimes fell apart and look awkward or forced because their styles didn't seem to mesh, but it was never boring. He gives this one a star and three quarters. Of course, at this point, I, I still would have more closely associated Regal as a WCW guy and Raven as an ECW guy, but that's not the case here because William Regal is the WWF's commissioner. So this is your WWF Alliance match, but this doesn't just scream classic WCW guy versus WWF guy to me. No. And, and again, you know, it's kind of hard to plug myself back into 2001, but Steven Regal probably at, at this point in 2001 had spent more time in WCW than he had in WWF. Yeah. Even, even, you know, kind of dilutes it even further. I think in the eyes of the fans now clearly backstage and, and those involved in creative, they had embraced Steven as a WWF character by this point. But in the eyes of the fans, within the context of the WCW invasion, I think, you know, this is armchair, you know, 20 years later, kind of booking or whatever, uh, almost 20 years. But, you know, if you were going to have somebody turn from a storyline position, Steven Regal could, especially as the commissioner, if that was his character at this point, can you imagine the kind of story that you could have built from that? If the invasion was going to be a longer term kind of plan, uh, that would have been interesting. You follow me there, Conrad? Yes, sir. Does that, make, does that make any sense to you, or am I just drinking my own Kool-Aid here this morning? No, I'm with it. I'm not anti. Just riffing. Just riffing. Every once in a while, it's nice to get in that armchair and, you know, figure out how things should have, could have been. It's so easy when you don't actually have to do it. <laughs> and you can just sit back and think about what could have been. At this point, July 2001... You know, what was your primary, you know, business interest? I mean, if you weren't really focusing on wrestling, were you already knee deep in television? What programs were you working on? Do you recall? Uh, I think the very first show that we, that Jason and I, Jason Hervey and I, we, when we formed our partnership, uh, Bishop Hervey Entertainment, we sold a show to NBC called I Want to Be a Hilton with Paris Hilton's mother, Kathy, and her father. Uh, we sold that through or with a company called Endemol, which was a relatively new company at the time. Uh, they had been based, I believe in Holland and they were making their way into the United States. They had opened up offices in Hollywood and really uh, became one of the juggernauts in non-scripted programming and still are to this day. It's now called Endemol Shine, uh, because they merged with another company called shine entertainment based out of the UK. Uh, uh, so that, yeah, that's what I was focused on at this point was that very first show that we sold. Uh, and we sold it with a, to a guy, uh, our executive at Endemol was a young man by the name of Paul Buccieri. Uh, and Paul went on to become one of the top executives at Fox for a long time and is now one of the very top executives at the A&E networks and still a very good friend. So there you go. That I want to be a Hilton. I just looked that up. It aired in 05, but you were already working on the show four years ahead of time. What's the new, typical arc from when you sort of work on the germ of an idea for a TV show to where it actually makes air? It can, 
year, five years, two years, three years, you know, very rarely do you come across an idea and you, for example, on that, that show that would aired in 2005, we we're probably producing it in 2000, fourth quarter to three, Oh three, maybe Oh four. You start developing it and pitching it and you know what they say when I say packaging, you, first of all, you got to, especially at that time with unscripted programming, uh, so much of it was talent driven as opposed to concept driven. In other words, you know, Pawn Stars, for example, that's a concept show. It's not a talent driven show. Clearly, the talent emerges and becomes stars after the fact, but it's not, the show isn't driven by the talent, it's driven by the concept. With I Want to Be a Hilton, that was very much a celebrity talent brand driven show. So that was a matter of, you know, you're going to spend six months or so, maybe more getting the talent excited about that idea and getting them on board so that you have an idea that you can actually go out and pitch to a network. And then you get the ta- you get the talent package, you develop a very loose concept uh, and you you'll take that to your agents uh, or your whoever represents you and you'll get their input and they'll help you determine, you know, who might be the most you know suitable network for that particular show. And then you start attaching, you know, other uh, uh, below the line types of talent. Who's going to be your show runner? You know, what, what, what other talent do you need, you know, to bring into the project to make it work? And then you pitch it to a network or networks that could be a six month to a year, year and a half long before you finally get a sale. So it, it, so much of it just depends on the market conditions at the time and, and the type of project that it is. We've had we've we have sold projects that you know you come up with on a, on a Monday and you know six months later you're shooting and you've already sold it. Wow. Uh, I've got ideas. You know, we, I've got a project right now that I've been working on for six years that's just now um, beginning to see the light of day. So it's it just so much of it depends. Let's talk about another what if type scenario. Oh, here comes Taz. Of course, he's with the WWF, but he is an ECW original. T-Bone Tazplex. Out he goes. See what happens. I have an idea, though. And there it is. Ravens DDT. That's your finish. How about that? Don't call it a streak, but all of a sudden, WWF's lost two in a row, baby. And the commissioner... No less. That's kind of a big damn deal. What'd you think of this match, Conrad? It was there. It was solid. It was solid. You know, give it, it a good it's hard six to, or seven. It's hard to follow what we just saw, though. You know, the Kidman match was really, really good. So we're going to get a, uh, a little backstage skit here with The Undertaker and Kane, the brothers of destruction. And that's The Undertaker's wife, Sarah. And, uh, I think Vince is going to give them a bit of a pep talk here. Uh, but undertaker, he's not really that into this idea of a pep talk from the chairman. And, uh, he may have a, a different opinion. No, I, obviously I wasn't watching at this point, but what was the, what was the storyline here? What, what, what was undertaker involved with? He's in the main event. It's a, a multi-man tag match is our main event with the Alliance versus WCW, or I'm sorry, the Alliance versus WWE. And so 
Uh, that's where DDP is. And DDP was revealed as being a stalker. So he has been stalking the undertaker's wife, taking footage. That's kind of, that's, that's kind of creepy. Yeah. Now, of course, DDP years later would say his idea was to feud with the rock people's champ versus people's champ. But of course, of course it was, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Of course it was. So the, uh, the WWF side of things. Is Chris Jericho, Kane, Kurt Angle, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and The Undertaker. And the Alliance side of things is Booker T, The Dudley Boys, DDP, and Rhino. So really the only representation on the Alliance side of the equation was DDP, correct? Uh, you mean of WCW? Yeah. Booker T. And DDP. Oh, that's right. Booker T. Booker T. I'm sorry. That's right. Okay. Well, that's, that's pretty strong representation. Would you, uh, would you rock the shirt like this in 2001 where it says big show and it's got an arrow pointing to your dick? Mm, no, I don't like to call attention to myself in that regard. It's just, I, I think it's tacky, you know, and, and quite honestly, unnecessary. <laughs> Blue chew. <laughs> I mean, it says big and over. I mean, it feels like with Blue chew. You could have the big show. Hey, so let's do some, uh, some questions here. People have been anxious to talk to you about the invasion for a long time. And here's an interesting question from brick Moss corner. Hypothetically speaking, if WCW had won the Monday night wars, would you have booked an invasion angle or would you have just slowly integrated WWE and ECW's talent? Uh, clearly hypothetical. I would like to think. I, I, I find it more entertaining to believe that I would have booked the, the invasion angle because I believed in it. I mean, that was, you know, that was the essence, the premise, if you will, um, of the whole NWO and the success behind it was Scott and Kevin coming over from WWF and in their way invading WCW to seek revenge on the people that didn't give them the opportunities and the money that they felt they deserved when they were there the first time. That was the premise. So, and it worked. So I would, I would like to think that I would have kind of gone back to that well and found a new way or a variation of the same formula to try to achieve that success again. But who knows, you know, so much depends on the conditions and opportunities and limitations and parameters and legal issues. You just never know. But I'd like to think that if all things were equal and, and the opportunity would have been there, I would like to think oh, that's exactly what I would have done. Give me some more. Hit me some more questions here as we get fired up at this match. Um, well, I mean, this is part two of that same one. Any particular feuds you would have booked immediately? Like, you know, let's imagine all things are equal and you could get everybody. And obviously that's not what Vince was able to do here. So it is a bit of an unfair, uh, comparison, but let's just pretend you have access to the whole roster, you know, at their peak WCW and WWF at their peak. What, what, what naturally jumped out to you? You know, I, I, especially looking at this now, and I know everybody, you know, still to this day, you know, what if, you know, we would have had Sting and Undertaker. I know that's, you know, front of mind for most wrestling fans in the what if category. But, uh, and I know Steve Austin and Goldberg is probably right there with it. But I really, all things being equal, would have loved to have seen, you know, uh, Undertaker Goldberg uh, 20 years ago. I think that would have been really cool. Wow. Nobody even talks about that, but you're right. That would have been fun. Here's a fun question here from, uh, Austin Smith. 
If I could have picked any moment for Eric to make his first appearance post WCW sale, it would have been at the end of the WrestleMania X seven main event where Austin had turned heel and he's shaking hands with Vince McMahon. What if Eric Bischoff came out at that very moment? What would Eric's perfect moment have been for him to debut? Wow. That would have been a good one. I'm not sure what the creative behind that would have been. I mean, the beat would have been really interesting. I, um, I, I know I'm going to sound like I'm just pandering here because of the show, but I, I am kind of disappointed that I, I turned down the opportunity to be a part of this. And again, I don't think, you know, it, it might not have had any real impact on the overall success of this pay-per-view or the story going forward out of it. But if I let my imagination run wild and think about it, you know, with Paul there and the dynamic and the history that Paul Heyman and I had at the time, um, the WCW talent there, all the backstory and the history between WCW and WWF at the time, I'm kind of kind of chewing my inner lip here, wishing I would have been a part of this. It could have been really good. Patrick wants to know what would Eric's dream team of five on five for WCW versus WWE have been? So we know the main event here. Oh, got it. To recap Booker T the Dudleys Rhino and DDP against Jericho Kane, Kurt Angle, Austin and Undertaker. Let's just, let's just pretend. So on one side, I mean, you'd have to, on the WCW side, you'd have to have Goldberg, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd probably also want to have, uh, diamond Dallas page, right? I, I, he would be there, but I would, I would have probably tagged in sting first okay. just in, in, in order of okay. impact Goldberg and sting one and two is flair on the list of Hogan on the list, Nash. What do you got? Uh, flair would definitely be on the list. I think I would have had to put Hogan on the other side of the equation. Because even at this point, I think most people recognize Hulk Hogan as being a WWF guy, not a WCW guy. Okay, so we'll say Bill Goldberg, Sting, Ric Flair. Is uh, Kevin Nash on it? Is Diamond Dallas Page on it? Is Scott Hall on it? I don't think so. DDP would definitely be on it because he he was definitely a WCW guy at the time. But I don't think I would have put Hall and Nash in the equation. Booker T? Uh, Definitely Booker T. Definitely Booker T. Okay, so, was, so there's your five. That, there's our five guys, yeah. So Bill Goldberg, your team captain, if you will, Sting, Ric Flair, Diamond Dallas Page, Booker T. The WWF side, it's got to be Steve Austin, right? Yep, no doubt. Uh, you probably have The Undertaker on there. No doubt. Who else you got? Uh, let's see. Who, I, I would have had to put Jericho in there as a wild card. Just from a storyline point of view, because you, you'd always have the opportunity to either make a really cool turn uh, or or tease one to, to kind of create some anticipation and just make fans wonder what's going to happen. Um, so I'd, I'd put Jericho in there for sure. Um, Is The Rock on the list? God, you'd have to put The Rock there, wouldn't you, in 2001? I think so. You'd, you'd have to put The Rock there have to well you said you wanted hogan on this side uh you know i don't 
McFoley, Triple H. Yeah, no, Mike. not McFoley, not McFoley. You know, in two thousand one, work work rate was everything. Um, and and not that Mick didn't have a great work ethic. Don't don't get me wrong, but I I would have wanted to see as much really fast paced action as I could get in two thousand one, uh, as opposed to strong characters. Um, not that you want to sacrifice characters necessarily for work rate or work rate for characters, but um, I'm, I'm not sure I would have put him in that mix. And it, eh, no, I don't think I would have. Hard to say, but I don't think I would have. It's a tough. It's a, a lot of tough choices there. You got so you, a lot of talent we're talking about. You got Steve Austin. You got The Rock. You got The Undertaker. You got Chris Jericho. Who rounds out number five? Oh, you need. You definitely need that wild card in there. Number five. Number five. Number five. Oh. Just want to have Hulk Hogan sit this one out or slide him in. No, I. No, I would have put him in for the hot tag. I would have put him in for the. I would have. Yeah, you got to put him in for that hot tag. There's got to be that moment. And again, a little bit like Jericho. What's he going to do? Which way is he going to go? There's a there's a lot of potential there, especially with the NWO thing and everything. So yeah, I'd, I'd probably have to I'd tag him in there as a wild card. Well, there have been a spot anywhere on here for a giant or a macho man or Chris Benoit. I don't know, man. It's such a loaded. I mean, at, at whose expense? Right. You know, there's so much talent there that we're going over. Um, very difficult to weigh that. So there you go. Uh, Bill Goldberg, Sting, Ric Flair, DDP, and Booker T on one side. Austin Undertaker, Rock, Jericho, Hogan on the other. That's a lot, buddy. It's a hell of a card. Book it. Book it, Conrad. Book it. Um, Ryan Evans says, let's see if Bischoff stays on the company line now. Why do you think so many people are adamant that our podcast is going to change? Because you're, I mean, this is a, uh, this is a nostalgia podcast. We're talking about old stuff. We're not. I'm talking about current stuff. Well, why do you think there's such a fear that the show is going to change here? Because they're cynical. People are naturally cynical. Um, some people are, not all people. But, of course, they think, you know, I'm going to be forced to change things, forced to change because of my position, which is not the case. You know, full disclosure, you know, in one of my first meetings, we talked about, you know, current obligations and things that I could and could not um, continue with doing. And I made it clear that the podcast was really important to me, uh, for a lot of reasons and something that I enjoyed doing. And there was no issue at all, none whatsoever. Now, clearly I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be cognizant of certain things. I have to be, but I can't imagine the show's really going to change. You know, if you go back and listen to, you know, how, how many podcasts have we done now? 60 or 70 of them, 80 of them. I don't even know. A lot. It's been a yeah, it's been over, you know, probably hundreds of hours at this point. Yeah. Uh, I think you could go back and listen to any of those podcasts. And I was never critical of WWF. I, I, I critiqued it as I, as I critique some of my own work, I was critical of some of my own work and acknowledged, you know, some of the stupid stuff I've done and mistakes that I've made and things like that. Um, but overall, I think you'd have to look really hard and use your imagination uh, quite, quite frankly, to isolate any moments when I was really critical of WWF, so or WWE, so I don't, I don't think anything is going to change. No reason to. Well, I mean, and here's the thing: when you're critical of them, you're critical of something that happened in 1998. You know, we're not, 
we're not reviewing the current product or you know whatever so that's that's not going to change we're a nostalgia show and outside of us you know talking about your real life and and that's another part of the show you know you get to let people know about you and in the ring right now taz taking it to tajiri here um but you know you talk about cooking on the big green egg with mrs b or taking your dog nikki out or i mean that's a part of your real life and you just went through a major life change i mean moving more than halfway across the country and going from living in the sticks to living downtown so things are a little different these days man are they ever and by the way Here's another thing that I'm not used to. Now, you probably are because you live in the South, and, and I used to. You know, I lived in Atlanta, and, so I get it. Humidity <laughs> is something. <laughs> Welcome. It's, it's something I completely forgot about. You know, as a matter of fact, a good buddy of mine, Mark Bueller, out in Cody, Wyoming. Hey, Mark, if you're listening, um, sent me a picture yesterday. He, he's out on a... Uh, on his boat fishing on, on the, on the reservoir. And he goes, man, 74 degrees, 20% humidity, sun is shining, beautiful day. As I'm sweating like a gorilla in the zoo on a hot summer day, I'm taking my dog for a walk and the sweat is just pouring off of me. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's 96 degrees and 90% humidity here in Stanford. And I'm thinking, you son of a bitch. You didn't have to do that today. But, yeah, getting used to the humidity is uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a minute. Thank the Lord for air conditioning in the South, boy. I'm telling you. I, you know, I, again, you know, I, I'm in Wyoming. I watch the news in the morning. I'm drinking my cup of coffee. And, you know, it's 60 degrees out, you know, in July at 6 o'clock in the morning. And I'm watching the news and say, oh, it's going to be a high of 95 in New York City. And I'm thinking, wow, well, whatever. But when you're in New York City, or in this case, Stanford, and it's 95, it's freaking hot. I mean, it's brutal. I can't imagine not having air conditioning in the South or anywhere else, for that matter, when it's this hot. You know, I lived in Arizona. It's not the heat. The old saying, it's not the heat, it's humidity. That shit is true. True that. That's real true. I lived in Arizona. It would be 110 degrees out. I'd be out riding my motorcycle having a great time. Man, it's 95, 96 degrees here, and I won't go outside. It's brutal. I'm such a wimp. I'll get used to it. Another question here from uh, Twitter. If you could have rebooked this pay-per-view with one main event, what would it have been? And I, I assume what they're, what they're implying there is not a multi-man tag, but just let's go straight up, you know, maybe a one-on-one or, or a tag team match if you've got you know, just in their traditional setting. So, you know, not DDP teaming with the Dudley boys, but diamond Dallas page versus or Booker T versus, because those are your, your top WCW talents who are representing the WCW side of things. I think most people would agree Booker T and, and DDP. What would that have been? Who would have been the right opponent for Booker T or who would have been the right opponent for DDP or put them together? You know, I don't know if it if it would be book if it was one match. I'll go back to Undertaker Goldberg right. or Undertaker Sting. I mean, you know, aside from Ric Flair, you know, Ric Flair, you know, really was the face of WCW for as long as he was there. You know, in the minds I think of most wrestling fans, even though Goldberg, you know, at his peak was a bigger draw and we did more money and you know, arguably you could define success 
um, financially or, or in terms of ratings if you choose to. But I think in the hearts and minds of most wrestling fans, long-term wrestling fans, Ric Flair was the face of, of WCW. Right below him would be Sting. Largely because of what Ric Flair did, you know, for Sting's career and his association for so long with with Ric Flair. So I, 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 if there was going to be an Undertaker Sting moment, this is probably where it should have been. Fun question here. Stephen Flynn wants to know which match would have been better Goldberg versus Gilberg. Or the Ultimate Warrior versus the Renegade. I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? You broke up just a little bit. Well, well yeah. I guess we should remind everybody that Eric is broadcasting this week from uh, temporary housing with not the world's best Wi-Fi. So if you hear something cut out here or there this week, we're still committed to bringing you the show, but we're doing the best we can with temporary housing this week. Chat me up though. Um, which match would have been better? This comes to us from Stephen Flynn. Goldberg versus Gilberg or Ultimate Warrior versus Renegade? Ooh, Goldberg Gilberg would have been really, that would have been fun to watch. Because Bill, I mean, that really bothered him. I mean, the, the intent, now it, it, it would have been a train wreck of a match. And, and I'm not sure Gilberg would have come out of it in one piece. But man, it would have been fun to watch that thing evolve backstage leading into it you know what i mean like when you get to the building and everybody knows the match is going to happen and just watching the drama <laughs> that would have gone on because bill bill wore his emotions on his sleeve at that point and uh he would have had a hard time wrapping his head around that so for that reason alone i think that would have been a great match probably would have been more entertaining backstage than it was in the ring to be true Can you imagine what Bill would have been banging his head off of during the day leading into that? <laughs> How about the mist? I don't get the mist. I've never been a mist guy. I know it's a big deal and people have done it for decades and probably since the beginning of modern television, professional wrestling, but never been a big fan of spitting mist. But Matt Hardy, we're looking at Matt and Jeff Hardy. Matt, great shape here. Oh, tear to the back. RVD on fire. That is RVD, right? Yes. I love, yeah. you. I love you so much. Well, I, I couldn't tell. The camera was moving around, and he was in and out so fast. It looked like RVD. Do you have any see-through shirts like that that Matt Hardy's wearing? Yeah, I do. Oh, Jesus. Please tell me that's true. Uh-huh. Can, I get, uh -huh. can we get you to uh, post that on social media this next week? Nobody wants to see that. Nobody. Well, have Mrs. B put it on. We'll all watch that. <laughs> yes. Hey, that's something we haven't talked about. How's uh, Mrs. B like in Stanford? You know, I, she was more excited about this move than I was. I was pretty excited about it. You know, I, I was a little reluctant to leave Cody. I, you know, I've worked my entire life to my adult life to, to have a home there. I've always wanted to live in the mountains. I've always loved it out West. And it was a little bit of a challenge, you know, emotionally for me to realize that I was going to be living on the East coast, but obviously the opportunity was sufficient to, 
I was able to get over that. But Ms. B, on the other hand, couldn't wait. Now, she loves Wyoming. Don't get me wrong. No problem there. She loves it as much as I do in many respects. But she also loves change. She likes opportunity. You know, I'm just not talking about the financial opportunity. She likes the opportunity to experience different things. Right. And and I think for her, um, much more so than me, the idea of you know a different lifestyle in a different environment was really exciting for her. So she was very very positive about it. I'm lucky that way, you know, because this this job is it's it's a monster of a job. I'm not going to lie. Uh, it, it's the biggest responsibility I've ever had, quite frankly, in many respects. Um, so I'm excited about that. But the I, I could never pull this off without the kind of support, you know, that I'm getting from her. Because if she was not enthusiastic about moving, or you know, I had to worry about that aspect of my life, it would make the professional side of things even more challenging. And I, I don't have to worry about that. So I'm very grateful for that. Very lucky guy. I know it sounds really sappy on a wrestling podcast, but that's the fact. Have you tried uh, any of the Colony Grill pizza yet? No, but I'm telling you, no. It is, here's now. Here's the deal. We got here last Monday, right? It's not even been a week yet. We're in temporary housing, and as a matter of fact, as soon as I finish this podcast, because uh, they put me up in a in a one bedroom apartment because that's all that was available uh, in the corporate housing that they they've set up for us. Um, but as soon as I'm done with this podcast, we now have to move all of our stuff into another apartment, a bigger one. So, um, we're really not settled in at all. All of our stuff is still in boxes and it's all very, very temporary. Um, but it's all good. And there's so many good places around here to eat. There's a place down the street called Jaja. It's an Italian restaurant. And I thought I knew good Italian food. You know, I've lived in Detroit. I lived in Pittsburgh. I, <laughs> oh, no, I lived in a neighborhood that was all Italian as a kid growing up. I mean, most of my neighbors didn't speak English. That's how Italian it was. Uh, so I've grown up around good Italian food. But, oh, my God, this is good Italian food. But, no, I haven't checked into the pizza yet. I will, though, this week. But we've, we've told ourselves, okay, this week, until we get moved into the new place and so we can actually go grocery shopping, we're just going to eat out every night. So I, we've been checking them off the list, brother. We may have to check that one out tonight. We're, we're talking over a really, really good match. In, our, in my opinion, the best ahead, match bro. on the show, uh, Jeff Hardy and Rob Van Dam. If you're going to watch one match this week, I would say go watch that one. It gets four stars. They go 12 minutes and 40 seconds. Really, really good stuff. It's Rob Van Dam's pay-per-view debut for the World Wrestling Federation. Of course, uh, these guys have wrestled before on a Monday night raw, I think back in 1997, back when he was Mr. Monday night and working with ECW, Jeff Hardy at the time was just an enhancement talent, but this is really something special and, uh, lots of new energy and, and unique hot spots, probably one of the breakout performances of Rob Van Dam's career. Uh, and he's doing it with a guy who is historically known at this point as a tag wrestler, Jeff Hardy. I think people got a, a sense for what Jeff Hardy could be as a singles competitor as a result of this match. So if you're going to watch one match this week, I'm going to recommend it be this one. Rob at his peak, Rob Van Dam at his peak, um, really innovative, fun guy to, to, to watch, but I, 
from what I've heard, I've never had the uh, opportunity, if you want to call it that, to be in the ring with Rob, but he could he could lay him in. I watched him kick the teeth out of uh, Abyss in TNA. <laughs> it's like, you know, that, that spinning kick that he does, and that's the thing about kicks is, you know, in order to get them up and get them moving and get everything going in the direction you want it to go, it's a little hard to pull a kick. And that, and that, a lot harder to pull a kick than a punch. So a guy that relies on big kicks like Rob did, you know, probably 50-50 shots you're going to potato your opponent at least 50% of the time, if not more. Years ago, I was uh, at a Raw with Rick hanging out, and this is before doors opened. And, uh, and how about Jeff Hardy running the rails here? <laughs> this, is, this is good stuff, man. These guys are pulling out all the stops. Anyway, uh, the, the creative is coming down and everybody's, you know, starting to huddle up and say, Hey, what are you doing tonight? What are you doing tonight? And eventually, uh, uh, someone approaches and, and tells the group that's sort of now circled around Rick for story time. Hey, what are you doing tonight? And he says, this performer says, Oh, I've got Rob Van Dam and another veteran in the circle says, Oh man, get your fucking hands up. <laughs> I don't know why, but that just tickled me. Yeah, because everybody knew. Hardy was, you know, you mentioned Hardy running the the rails. I mean, he look at this. I mean, Van Dam, same thing. The guys are like cats. I mean, they just do things, and it looks so effortless. But can you imagine just standing on the floor, jumping straight up, and landing, you know, three and a half feet in the air on a rail? And then launching yourself off of it, just you know, like cats. And these days, you know, don't get me wrong, uh, this is this is great stuff. Then, now, forever. But these days, a lot of the moves and stuff they're putting together in this match wouldn't be considered all that crazy because it, a lot of it is just more commonplace because wrestling has evolved. But you got to appreciate, you know, all this time ago, eighteen years ago, a lot of this was stuff people were seeing for the very first time. And, and they're doing it, you know, they're not, they're not 170 pound guys, not, not disparaging that. Just saying Rob Van Dam is not a little guy. You meet him in real life and you realize this is a pretty good sized dude, but he's still able to pull all this stuff off. And this is at a time when nobody was doing anything like it. So really spectacular stuff that uh, was ahead of its time. And it's now commonplace. I mean, these guys were sort of trailblazers for this style that is really commonplace on an NXT show or an AEW show or an Evolve show or, you know, any of that stuff. You know, you, you talk about Rob Van Dam and, and what a phenomenon he was, and in many cases still is. Uh, he, he You know, he's not like, you know, bodybuilder big and bodybuilder thick and heavy, but if you meet him, you know, if, if you, you get anywhere near him, he is dense. And he carries the majority of his weight in his legs, his hips and his legs. He's a really powerful guy. Uh, his legs are incredibly strong and powerful naturally. Again, not a not bodybuilder type. Uh, but I, I would guess here he's probably weighing 235, maybe 240. Doesn't, doesn't look like a bodybuilder 240, but he's a solid, I'm guessing, 240 here. Look at this. Uh, oh. And flexible. He's flexible like a gymnast. That's the part that's amazing. 
And probably one of the reasons his career lasted as long as he did, given some of the crazy stuff that he did, and he was able to to stay healthy primarily because he was so flexible. That was a big move off the ring apron. That was big. A power bomb, a sunset flip into a power bomb off the apron onto the floor. Again, you know, these days you're seeing really spectacular, you know, crashes on the the apron. And of course, every time that happens, the announcers have to remind us that's the hardest part of the ring. I think that's they're legally obligated to do so. But still, this is ahead of its time. And now you see the giant ladder, which we know Jeff Hardy has become famous for with his TLC matches with the Hardy Boys. And I've got to tell you, and I'm not afraid of heights. I mean, I was a private pilot. You know, heights don't bother me at all. But climbing up on that ladder on live TV scared the hell out of me. Not necessarily because I'm afraid of the heights, but I'm afraid of something that could go wrong. I mean, look at that. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Oh. Something I've always enjoyed, you know, and just the psychology of a ladder situation like that. It's like, why wouldn't you just push the guy over? And then somebody finally does, and it's pretty spectacular. The scariest part of that for me would have been going up the ladder, not getting pushed off of it, because that you can see coming and you can time it. But yeah, climbing up that ladder on live TV would that be that'd be a challenge. What'd you think of, um, Rob Van Dam's airbrushed gear? Something we haven't I never, I, I, I just, if I never see anything airbrushed again, it'll be a month too soon. I just hate airbrushed gear. I hate it. Always have. It looks like something you'd buy at the state fair. Like when you spend all your money on corn dogs and cotton candy and they've only got like $4 left and you walk by a little booth where they're selling airbrushed gimmicks and t-shirts and you, you, oh, I've only got four bucks left, but this shirt's only three ninety nine. I can afford it. That's what it reminds me of. Nothing against state fairs or the T-shirts that you can buy at them, but whenever I see anything airbrushed, I think of the Minnesota State Fair. Boom! Nice jump, spin, back kick by Rob Van Dam. That was a legit jump, spin, back kick. That was super legit. And uh, thanks, Jeff Hardy. Off the ramp onto the concrete below. That I want to see that again. Bam! Oh my God, that was sweet. That was like there used to be a, a fighter, and those of you who are MMA fans, kickboxing fans, probably know the name Rick the Jet Rufus. I actually used to uh, compete with his father, PJ Rufus, but. Rick the Jet Rufus could throw a jump spin back kick. He was a good kickboxer, MMA fighter. He could throw one of the best jump spin back kicks that I've ever seen. Rob Van Dam's was right there with it. That's how good it was. Nicely done, Rob. By the way, I didn't realize that you knew. I mean, this is how small the world is. I had no idea that you knew Rick Rufus. I knew Rick Rufus. Let me tell you something. When I used to teach uh, martial arts, Rick Rufus was like six or seven years old. He used to chase me around the karate school where I was teaching because his dad, he was from Milwaukee originally. 
and his dad, Pat Rufus, PJ Rufus, uh, was an instructor that we did a lot of business with and competed with and different things like that. And he was he would come to Minneapolis on a regular basis. And Rick would chase me around the, the karate school, hanging off my leg, driving me nuts while I was trying to teach classes. So, yeah, I, I know the Rufus family. Well, the reason I mention that is his younger brother, Duke Rufus, has put a ton of talent through the UFC these days, like um, Tyrone Woodley or Ben Askren. But in another era, probably when I was more into MMA, Stefan Bonner, Matt Mitrione, Jens Pulver, Showtime, Anthony Pettis, Alan Belcher. But most famously, I guess, for wrestling fans, he's also the guy who trained CM Punk in MMA. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I I think Duke is younger than Rick. So, yeah, five um, years I'm younger. Not- yeah, so I, I think Duke may have been, you know, something that happened on a Friday night. But um, at that point, so I, I, I've never met Duke, but I certainly knew uh, Rick and when he was a kid and his dad. But um, yeah, he definitely—I I know of Duke certainly, and clearly, you know, familiar with with his relationship with Punk. It's just hilarious to me what a small world it is where <laughs> you know the guy's brother. Like, wow, I get around, bro. I got some miles on me. Jeff Hardy. Where did he get cut open? Did you see that? Because he's, he's, he's at the top of his head is gashed. And that looks like, that looks like an incidental type of thing. Not a intention. That looks like what the veteran, uh, that day at raw was talking about. Get your fucking hands up. (laughs) It's a good match. You were right about this. I mean, these guys, you get the, uh, the sense and the feel, you know, when you can make me sort of suspend disbelief just for a minute, you really feel like, man, these guys are doing everything they can to really win and, or, kill, uh, or, 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 or beat each other to death. One or the way. other. What do you think of the five-star frog splash? Um, I liked it because there was so much hang time. I mean, it, it was like literally he, you, you'd see him in midair for a long enough period of time that you could actually get a feel for that move. You could anticipate it landing. He was up in the air for so long. Sometimes moves like that happen so fast. They, they're over before they register with the audience. Uh, but that he'd get so much hang time again because of Rob's athleticism. Uh, he would get he, Rob would get so much hang time in midair that it just made it look even more dramatic, and the fact that he would spread out the way his arms and his legs were completely spread out like a, you know, a, a Marvel comic character it just was so dramatic. I'm gonna say that's one of my top, probably one of my top fifty matches in WWE of all time right there. I mean, you think about how many matches that I is. agree. I mean, that's really really good stuff. Go out of your way to watch because- it. Oh, that looks so cool. What's slow mo cool there? The, the, uh, Rob and Dam frog splash. Just awesome. What's cool too, about the, the way Van Dam did it is he would sell the impact himself afterwards. Like he would roll around holding himself like, you know, cause that's logical. You know, he's crashing his body into another human body. It's gotta hurt him too. And he's your new hardcore champion. First pay-per-view match in the company, big showing. Makes a big splash, gets a lot of attention for himself. Good for him. Such a cool guy, too. You know, I, I've heard, you know, 
a lot of Rob Van Dam stories from different people, but my experience with him, he's such a laid back, easygoing guy, but he's also one of those guys you can underestimate um, in, in terms of his, his real ability to, to get into it if, if need be. He's a legit tough guy, but you would never guess it because he's just so easy to be around and so cool and so calm. Kurt Angle. We're looking at Kurt Angle and Vince McMahon now in the back. Kurt Angle, another. Again, you look at these guys and go, oh my God, look how young he looks. But this is 2001. When did he win the gold medal in 98? Was it? Uh, 1996. 96. 90, that's right. 96 Olympics. Wow. Look at the neck on Kurt Angle. This like, neck scares me. It's funny because uh, at some point in the company, I think after he lost his hair and he, and he shaved his head, people would start to compare him to a thumb. <laughs> I can see it. And talk about it. You know, we talked earlier about how talent can find themselves and all of a sudden hit that gear. And sometimes it just happens. I mean, it, it, it can happen just in, in the middle of a promo. All of a sudden you just, it's like, you know, maybe you're making contact with the balls that's coming across the plate and you're hitting fall balls. Or you're maybe getting a single every once in a while. And then you just change something up. Maybe you just shift your feet a little differently. You shift your weight a little differently and you make contact with the ball and you go, ah, that's how it's done. That's how you hit a home run. And you're able to repeat that. Well, the same type of thing can happen in the ring in the middle of a promo or I guess in a match. I'm certainly not an expert in that regard, but I know in the ring in a promo, you can just... You can just feel that, okay, that's how you do it. And I think Kurt Angle is another one of those talents. So he's a, hey, we had amazing talent from the get-go, but I think Kurt Angle was another one of those guys that just hit his gear probably right about now and was such a natural performer. I've always loved watching Kurt. And I compare Kurt sometimes to, to Dolph Ziggler and vice versa because Dolph is another one of those guys, obviously a legitimate athlete, you know, legitimate collegiate you know, wrestler. But he's a guy that can be, you know, dangerous, believable, credible one minute and then have you laughing your ass off the next. And that's one of the things I loved about Kurt Angle. And we talked again earlier about having three or four or five gears and be able to you know, find different ways to expand your character. I think that's one of the things that has made Kurt Angle such a great performer over the decades is he could shift that gear. He could be a comedy, you know, relief moment. And, and be great at it, or he could be a legitimate badass that everybody knows, you know, could, could rip you apart the next. And I think that diversity in your character and that flexibility with your character uh, and range is one of the things that, you know, talent should strive for and, and appreciate in others because it's, it's rare. I got to tell you, I think this is another one where WCW has the advantage. As we look at this uh, video package of Stacy Keebler and, uh, Tori Wilson, they're going to be taking on Trish Stratus and, uh, Lita. Eric, what was your favorite Stacy Keebler match? You know, uh, <laughs> any one of them, any one of them. I love <laughs> all of them. It's a tie. Any, anyone where she got an entrance was fine with me. But she, she had legs up to her earlobes. I mean, it was she had the most amazing set of legs I've ever seen. And she was a great athlete. 
and a nice person. That's the other thing people don't know about her as much as they should. She was genuinely a very nice person to be around. Mick Foley is your referee. I'm sure they didn't have to uh, convince him too hard for this job. You know, I find being a referee is one of the most challenging things that I've done in the ring. I used to hate it when I said, okay, we're going to use Bischoff as a special referee in this match. Oh, guys, really? Do I really need to do that? Now, in WWE, I wouldn't say that. I'd keep it to myself. But, you know, secretly to myself, it's like, oh, I don't want to do that. I hated being a referee. And let's talk about why, I mean, you've got to anticipate where the guys are going to be and you've got to stay out of the way, but not too far out of the way. Cause you've got to be ready to spring into action and you've got to be ready to go up and down. And then you've got to monitor the shoulders. And I mean, there's, there's more to it than I think a lot of, you know, fans really realize. I mean, you're, you're not the guy calling the spot or necessarily even hearing the spot, but you've got to guess where they're going and stay the fuck out of the way. You know, you, you, and you have to know the match. You, you have to know exactly what's going to happen throughout the match. It's, it's a lot. There's a lot to screw up as a referee. You know, I'm sure referees that do it, you know, every day or every week, you know, they get used to it. They like anything else, you know, the more you do it, the better you get at it and the more comfortable you become. But if you're not, if you don't do it on a regular basis, you know, give me a three page interview or, or promo. I'm good. I'm good with that because that's what I did. I'm not, not necessarily good with it now because I haven't done it a long time. But back in the day, I, you know, I was able to memorize things very quickly and not have a problem retaining it and things like that. So I was good performing on the mic, but man, somebody say, okay, you're going to be the special referee in a match. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting with the guys and listening to them, you know, going through what's going to happen. And, you know, you're right. Staying out of the way, you know, cause you're a good referee. You don't really see them till you need them. You know what I mean? They shouldn't be there in, in the middle of the action unless they're important to the action so yeah you know trying to stay away from the camera shot until you're needed and not getting run over there's been more than one occasion you know when i was in a ref when i was refereeing a match and if i wasn't paying close enough attention or sometimes things do change in the ring for whatever reason uh and you're in the wrong place at the right time it's like you gotta get the hell out of the way or you're gonna get run over you know screw things up so yeah I, it was very stressful Lita was a hell of an athlete, wasn't she? She probably still is, but I used to like watching Lita work. Another cool person. Oh, that's just a little bit in WWE. She was a star cast. Couldn't have been easier. Very classy, very professional. And speaking of classy and professional brawn panties match, let's go. Yep. Different era, different time, different era, different audience, different culture. Everything was different. It's fascinating how things change. You know, and it's it's funny how when you look at culture, in most regards, you know, even watching network television. You know, I everyone and I don't watch much network television, believe me. But occasionally, you know, I'll I'll check something out or I'll hear about something that's really good and I'll watch it. And it's amazing what you can get away with in, in in terms of standards and practices on network television and prime time in today's culture. But it's also amazing what you can't get away with in in 
especially with you know regard to sports entertainment it's it's become more conservative whereas i think music you know movies humor in in other forms of entertainment have all gotten probably more risque uh as opposed to you know sports entertainment where i think it's for the most part gotten more conservative over the years it's just kind of a fascinating thing to watch and they're teasing taking uh trish's top off for stacy having nothing to do with that i guess that makes her heel Interesting too, because Stacy and, and and Trish at this point were not necessarily seasoned wrestlers. So well, neither Trish. Trish trying is to get very young in her wrestling career, and I mean, for that matter, Lita is too. I mean, all these girls are very young. All these ladies, sorry, are very young, and um, but Trish probably has uh, as much wrestling experience as the WCW performers, but uh, Lita is definitely person with the most experience certainly the most aggressive yeah the former miss congeniality from ecw really yeah uh, what were the what was the judging criteria on that I, i'm just curious no, i'm not i'm not you know crapping on it i'm just curious it was a gimmick oh oh we'll see it got me yeah she just wore a sash out that said miss congeniality and then would like spank people with paddles or something Oh, so I, I got to tell you, when I see, uh, Stacy Keebler and Tori Wilson, I feel like we've got to make a decision here. Who do we hate more? David Flair or Billy Kidman? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm probably hating on Billy. Yeah. I know. I know Layfield hates Kidman's guts. Yeah. I'm sorry, Billy. I love your work. You're a good guy, but in the context of this conversation, yeah, burning hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I love you. <laughs> uh, how about the sign in the crowd that, I mean, I don't even know what this is about, but there's a, a pink sign with black lettering that says, can I buy you a fish sandwich? Yeah, what I mean, sometimes, I mean, I miss good wrestling signs, you know, not the ones that look like you bought them at, you know, the concession stand, but I mean, the ones that people actually put time and thought into and are somehow able to get into the ring or into the arena. Good wrestling signs are, they make the show. They can be entertaining as hell. They can be dumb, but some of them can be really entertaining. I mean, when you think about what these companies did here, WCW and the WWE, that's an interesting spot. The old Andre, the giant, Jake, the snake Roberts, ultimate. Warriors I kind of like it. It's but what the companies are doing is they're recruiting performers here who, you know, who Vince McMahon believes could be on the cover of playboy. Lord, I miss wrestling from this era. Uh, and then they're teaching them how to wrestle. And this is not like, I don't think any of these ladies, I mean, perhaps Lita grew up like loving wrestling and wanting to be a wrestler. And, but the other ladies were just fitness models that looking for a new gig and ta-da, there you go. Tori Wilson loses and we all win. 
life was wonderful in 2001. <laughs> I mean, I know we were just putting over the Jeff Hardy, uh, Rob Van Dam match, but this, I mean, this might be the best match on the show so far. Well, in truth be known, what we're seeing here, you know, and they call it a brawn panties match, but you can go to any beach that I've ever been to. Oh, and sure, sure. You don't, I mean, it's, it's really not as risque as, as the, the, the name of the match might imply, but, you know, it's the idea of it, I think. It's just the idea of it is so interesting. See that sign that said National Humane Society? I like that because, you know, the puppies thing was a big deal back in the day. Thanks to Jerry Lawler. Did you guys consider coming up with a WCW version of puppies? Uh, I didn't. I'm I'm sure others. Look at Trish. She nearly did. just took a header off the ramp onto the concrete. Mm. They just yeah, my and, life. and Mick Foley being the gentleman that he is. Yeah. I hate you, Mick Foley. What are you doing? <laughs> Never mind. It's all good, Mick. Okay, all right. So, so here we go. We got another promo here. We're getting ready for our main events. And uh, it's this multi person tag match Rhino, the Dudley Boys, Diamond Dallas Page, and Booker T. Stephanie is trying to get them fired up, as is Paul Heyman. So I've, I've got to go back and listen to this. And I'm not, I'm not, you know. Now, putting Paul over because we're working together, I've always said this about Paul. He is one of the best promos in the business. He's so good. Wade Keller would say this pay-per-view was never boring, but not one undercard match had a strong storyline or even a passionate, focused interview leading into it. This was a mildly entertaining show 95% of the time and dazzling and emotionally riveting for 5% of the time. That's enough for a mild thumbs up, but the WWF should strive for more. So a lot of people were disappointed in this pay-per-view, but there are some high points. I guess we should mention the, uh, the dark match here, uh, that that's not on the network version of the show is Chavo, uh, versus Scotty too hottie and Chavo is representing the Alliance and he gets a win over the WWF Scotty too hottie. So it's Alliance one WWF zero then on the main card edge and christian even and out getting a win over lance storm and mike awesome earl hebner makes the wbf up one with his win over nick patrick apa makes sure they're up two billy kidman gets one for the alliance over x Pac. raven evens it out so we're all tied up there and then the alliance team that we sort of talked through of chris canyon hugh morris and sean stasiak I uh, got a win over Albert big show and Billy Gunn. That means the Alliance is up one to Jerry would even it out, even it out beating Taz, uh, Rob Van Dam gets a win over Jeff Hardy. So now we're back the other way. One up for the Alliance, Trish and Lita win. They even it out. So we head into our main event, 50, 50 booking as we get ready here and we see the backstory of how we got here into our main event with this invasion of WCW taking over. And here's Booker T big moment here for Booker T with the, uh, ax kick on Vince McMahon that brings everybody down. This is pretty cool. 
And this is when it was made apparent. This is in July when you see, oh, wait, these are all ECW guys. This is pretty cool what we're watching on this recap and set up. I'm reading here, so if you're listening along here and you hear the, the dead air, since I can't hear the audio, I'm, I'm reading here because I'm getting sucked into this, and it's pretty cool stuff. It did a great job of building this storyline up. I don't know. That does it. That that did look a little odd. It just did look a little odd. What Stephanie running ECW? Yeah. Yep. I get it. And was this Steve Austin at his peak here in 2001? Would you say that? No. No. What would you say his peak was? I mean, 98. I mean, as far as my fandom, 97. But 98 is when he was just unbelievable, unbelievably hot. 99 is probably the year. Um, where he made the most money, I would guess. But, I, but arguably he was arcing up at that point. I mean, he was exploding at that point. I, I, I don't know. I think his character was so strong here. So strong it, because it was established. He was no longer exploding out of the scene. He was owning the scene. Well, see, he had, he had turned heel at WrestleMania this year. So you go back to the very beginning of April. And he turned heel with Vince McMahon. It's the biggest mistake he made in his career. Uh, I mean, he would, he would say so because he was just super hot. And then when he turned heel, the interest in, in him and as, uh, you know, just, just the interest in the company, it started to wane a little bit and it was never quite the same. So I would say here we're three months into the decline of Steve Austin and the WWF, not, not Austin, the performer, just his popularity. It was at a, it was at a peak at WrestleMania 17 and then started to peter out a little bit. What do you think of Stephanie's hair here? Um, it's not the Stephanie. We're not my favorite look. Yeah. Just. No, I, I, you know, she's a, she's a beautiful woman, obviously, you know, a very talented one at that, but she's another one of those people. I see her, you know, in the hallways now and it's like, she, she doesn't, She's she's like Charles Robinson. She doesn't age. I don't know that you should say that in the hallway, though. No, let's edit that out. Let's make make sure we edit that. I forgot. I'm getting it. You know, I I let everybody know. I haven't been in a corporate environment in a long time, so I've got to be careful when I say I know that. Oh, we're just fucking busting balls. That doesn't matter. Stone Cold Not to you, it doesn't. <laughs> you gave a compliment. That's true. That's true. I mean, they're doing a good job here, sort of setting the stage and telling the story. And no disrespect to Booker T, but I don't know that I would have put Booker T and Steve Austin into a program. I mean, if I'm fantasy booking the invasion, maybe it would have been Booker T and Kane, and maybe it would have been, you know, the undertaker and Goldberg that you said, which was a fun idea. I don't know. I think I still might've done Goldberg and Austin. I mean that if you could, I mean, listen, there wasn't an option here. I understand, but 
if it were as a wrestling fan, I think that's what I would have wanted to see. What a, what an opportunity though. I mean, if it would have been, if you would have been able to pull that off, can you imagine that? Huge. And then, then you would have had the issue of, you know, actually having a match, which could have been challenging, you know, because again, Bill, Bill didn't have a lot of range as a performer, incredible athlete and intensity and all of those great things. But, I didn't have a lot of range in the WWF at this time or WWE was all about the action in the ring. You know, I mean, you, you had to really perform at a pretty high level. Um, and the match would have been tough, but conceptually would have been a great one. Great sign in the crowd. Booker T's number one fan. And it's T E a apostrophe S. Hey, so chat me up. You know, we got, we got this on the rock side of things where we saw the rock and Goldberg and we saw the rock and Hulk Hogan and the rock and Hulk Hogan was just absolute magic. Talk to me though, about the stone cold, Steve Austin side of things. What do you think would have been bigger? Hulk Hogan, sort of the, the guy who helped build the WWF to national and global prominence in the eighties versus Steve Austin, who sort of carried the torch into the nineties and two thousands at this point. So would that have been a bigger marquee match or Goldberg Austin? I, I think Goldberg Austin. See, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I mean, imagine, and we know that we're going to get Austin or not Austin. We're going to get rock and Hogan at WrestleMania, but man, what if, you know, when we see rock and Hogan, if we could have also seen Austin Goldberg, that's the real fantasy booking. You know, and I, 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 I go, I, I go with Austin Goldberg really because I think wrestling just across the board in terms of its penetration in the audience worldwide was probably at its peak during the Austin Goldberg, you know, era, even more so than in the eighties, the eighties was, you know, it was the golden era in many respects. Cable television was really emerging as a powerhouse. Wrestling was emerging as, you know, the leading programming on all of cable still is to this day. And that was the beginning of it. So in many respects, it was the golden era because it just changed so dramatically from the 60s and the 70s when it was local market syndication and territories. Um, But I think by the time Goldberg and Austin reached their respective peaks in their careers and their their familiarity or popularity with the audience, I think the industry as a whole was even bigger than it was during the 80s. And just in terms of the number of people watching – and it's uh, penetration into pop culture. So I, I think that's why that match, uh, Goldberg-Austin, would have been my pick, just because there were just more eyeballs watching wrestling during that period. Let's do a couple more questions from social media here. T. Lee wants to know, if there was ever a pay-per-view to book DX versus the NWO, this would have been it, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, on paper, Absolutely. On paper, um, again, the personalities, the timing, the issues, you know, if you could make all that stuff go away and none of those things were issues or problems or challenges, then yes, this, that would have been 
perfect. Perfect. Max Byrne wants to know would Eric have done this as an alliance where it's WCW and ECW together, or does he feel like it would have had more impact as a purely WCW versus WWE? No, I, I think the alliance, you know, I, I, and I, I say that uh, quick without thinking about it too much because I was looking at the uh, promo. And again, I'm reading the promo. I can't hear it, but I'm looking at the promo that uh, Vince McMahon and Steve Austin did when Austin was in a bar drinking a beer. And, you know, Vince McMahon is telling Steve Austin, you know, there's never been a challenge to the WWF like this alliance between WCW and ECW. I like that idea a lot because it, it was. It put WWE or WWF at this point, uh, they were cl- clearly the underdog because the, the deck theoretically was stacked against them from a storyline point of view. So I, I think that creatively was a smart move. And clearly, there, you know, there were a lot of ECW fans in the audience and a lot of great ECW talent. I think it would have been um, it, it would have been a mistake not to in, include them in there because there was a lot of strength there from a storyline point of view and a talent point of view. Great question here from Matt Suda. Eric has previously done interpromotional shows with both AAA and new Japan. At any point during his tenure as president of WCW, did he consider working with any domestic promotions like ECW, the USWA or Smoky mountain wrestling? No, no, no. I think there might've been, you know, again, cause Kevin Sullivan was, really um he had his finger on a pulse of ecw there might have been some conversation you know passing conversation about it but nothing uh, nothing serious talk to me a little bit about um you know the way the presentation is done do you think there should have been you know purely from a television standpoint like a an entrance set for the Alliance and an entrance set for WCW. I mean, for, for the WWF, like, should there have been maybe on different sides of the arena or something? And I realize that presents certain challenges, but it could have, I don't know, felt. A yeah. Lot it, 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 I get your point And I think you're right. You know, I mean, you, you dilute the impact of the concept when it's obvious that everybody's sharing a locker room or sharing the backstage area in one way, shape, or form. And, you know, there are just logistical challenges and, you know, limitations on what you can and can't do. But, again, let's just having fun with this. Let's just say you could do anything. Uh, I think having the alliance talent, WCW or or ECW in this case, having any of the talent that was invading the company, I, I would rather see them each coming through the crowd making their way to the ring and getting that crowd reaction as opposed to coming through a formal entrance, for example. Um, it would have been difficult. It would have been a challenge. It would have come with its own set of problems, but it would have been damn cool. And the, the, the crowd reaction as a result of it would have been even cooler. It, it, just, it would have felt legit. You know what I mean? If they would have had to come down through the crowd because they didn't get a locker room. They didn't get to, you know, they didn't get to eat and catering. You know, they had to wait out in a parking lot until their match. Even that could have been kind of interesting and fun to play with. You know, seeing the crowd out there and, you know, a a trailer parked out in a parking lot because they couldn't get into the building until they were allowed for their match. That would have made the whole invasion thing feel, feel, to me, a little more fun and perhaps a little more real. 
fun watching I, the dynamic here between Vince and Shane and Stephanie too. Had to be fun for them. You know, I've never talked to them about this, but uh, I will at some point, I'm sure. But this had to be this whole, you know, after, you know, purchasing WCW when Shane standing in the ring and buying the company out from his father and that whole storyline. You know, Shane was a, a, a new performer at this point. That had to be really exciting for him as well. To me, it just makes you wonder, like, you know, what could this have looked like had they waited two years? You know, if you wait two years, you've got Hulk Hogan, you've got Ric Flair, you've got Scott Hall, you've got Kevin Nash, uh, you've got Scott Steiner, you've got Goldberg. But I get, you know, there's, you know, wrestling fans. But you, 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 but you don't know that you're going to have them two years early. Right, 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 right. You can't predict that. You can't predict it. So, I mean, I get it and you're right. You know, I was there two years later, but, but, uh, but what you can predict is that a lot of these guys that because here's the thing. I mean, I know we didn't talk about this a lot, but they made contact with those guys and says, Hey, we'd like for you to come to work. And, um, here's what we can offer you. But that would have meant, you know, pennies on the dollar from their current contract. So, I mean, some of these guys were getting $20,000 a week checks to sit at the house. And that's hard to beat. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Can you imagine that conversation? Hey, honey, I, I just want to let you know I'm I'm going to terminate my Turner contract, and I, I know you know we just bought this new house, and we're putting money in the bank for retirement, all that great stuff. I know we're sending the kids to college, but I'm gonna I'm gonna kill that twenty thousand dollars a week, and I I've got an opportunity. I don't know what we're gonna make, you know. I'm going to have a little bit of an idea, but it'll, it'll be okay. That would have been a tough conversation <laughs> to have with your, your wife or your husband or your banker or your attorney. <laughs> it would have been an odd one. Well, it would have been fun. A lot of chaos too. here outside of the rain. Steve Austin putting the boots in. Booker, it looked like there. There's some serious intensity here. You'll notice that uh, Austin has that right hand wrapped up in his first interaction with Booker T. Um, obviously, by accident, things happen. Booker broke Austin's hand, and they didn't get off to the best start in the company as a result because Bruce Pritchard, as Bruce would say, called and told Booker T this this news and said that you know it'd be a good gesture. And it would be the right thing to do if he would, uh, carry Austin's bags for him since he just broke his hand and, and he's the top guy and you're the new guy. And of course, Booker T was having nothing to do with that. Thought that was very offensive that you would ask a black man to carry his bags. And then Bruce realized he put his foot in his mouth and said, no, that's not what I meant. I just meant, you know, he's our top guy and you literally broke his fucking hand on your first night. Might be a good gesture. And Booker thought maybe they're testing me or they're ribbing me or whatever. And, uh, there you go. We were off to the races on an interesting start in the company for Booker T. I did not know that. That is a tidbit of information. I did not know. I did know, did not know that Booker T broke Steve Austin's hand. And, and, you know, I mean, clearly, you know, it's an accident. Shit happens. I mean, nobody at this point, how did, how, how did it happen? You know? The little run-in you saw earlier where Booker T slid in and I mean, it wasn't anything that looked 
crazy. It was just fucking a accidents happen, but you know, I mean, timing of it was horrible. Oh my gosh. You know, your first night in and you heard him and then he's got to leave the building, right? The story was, I don't know if you remember, but he slid in, did his attack and slid out. I mean, it was, it was just in and out. So it's not like they're in the back after saying, oh man, sorry. I hurt you. I didn't realize my bad. He's gone. He doesn't even know he's hurt. So the optics in wrestling, as you know, are this motherfucker hurt me on his first night in. It doesn't even say anything. I'm not saying Austin said any of that, but I think Bruce trying to look out for Booker T gave him a heads up, but without the proper context, it sounds really shitty. So (laughs) no one's happy. Things are weird, but yeah, here we are in this main event. And I got to tell you, I was really glad the Dudleys were in this. Because the Dudleys were such a big part of VCW for so long. And if there really is going to be a representation from them, it's cool that he's in there, but it is a little weird that, you know, Rob Van Dam, who was a main eventer for them, he's not in this match and you know, there's no Sabu. There's no Sandman. It's a little weird that we've got this alliance in the WCW ECW relationship. I, I would have preferred it just be WWF versus WCW. And then at some point, you know, when it started to cool off, then you could introduce an ECW concept. And then maybe at some point you could have introduced an NWO concept where perhaps the WWF beats WCW and you pop in and say, well, you didn't beat the real WCW. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. And then boom, there's the NWO. There you go. See? Only we would have had that crystal ball back in the day. Damn it. If only you would have been watching, right? Instead of working on I know. Felton TV shows, which probably paid more and had less politics and uh, required less late night phone calls. Mm, true. <laughs> this is true, man. You know, I, I, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, um, uh, do you want to address all the rumor and innuendo about, uh, your role with WWE? I think a lot of people are having fun on the internet. Like, well, well, Bishop's supposed to be running SmackDown and he's not even here. What? what? And I'm like, guys, he's live tweeting that he's driving right now. I, I don't know. I mean, it's not like you can just teletransport there. You're, you're uprooting your family and moving across the country. Yeah. It's really interesting. I was, I've been reading a lot of the dirt from a lot of the dirt sheet faux journalists out there who presumably are trying to convince people they know what's really going on. And so far, you know, the, the reporting on, on all of my, everything that I've read has been wrong so far. And, you know, I'm not going to address it specifically because number one, I don't want to give them or the, the, the crap that they've written any credibility, but I'll just suffice to say, if you've read it in a dirt sheet or online or in a blog, it's been wrong from day one. My site was never supposed to be before July 22nd. I made that really clear. And then that was the understanding across the boards. But nonetheless, it was reported across the boards early on by dirt sheet scumbags, not to be named here. Um, and it was reported wrong. And anything that's been written and reported so far has been wrong in terms of what my role actually is and what it will be and when my start date will be. That being said, just get that out of the way. If you've read it online, it's been wrong. That being said, um, I'm, you know, it's going to take me. Uh, this is not 
and, and clearly, I, I knew this before I took this job, before I officially took the role, and I'm certainly even more acutely aware of it now. This is such a big job that there's no way me or anybody else is going to walk in and you know, take control of anything um, immediately. It's going to be a process. And in my case, it's going to be a long process because it is a very big job. And learning, you know, even the people that are involved and their respective roles and the processes that are involved. And it's just going to take time. So it'll, it'll be an evolution over time as opposed to, okay, it's a show tonight. That's not going to be the case with me or with Paul or with anybody else. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a process. And my process is going to begin really, uh, it started a little bit this week. Uh, in terms of my integration into the process, but it'll it'll start, you know, becoming even more um, tangible um, on Tuesday, which will be the first time I've even uh, attended a production meeting. And like I say, over a period of time, it'll it'll evolve and 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 change beyond that. But um, like I said, if you've read it online or read it in a dirt sheet, um, Kick yourself in the ass for spending ten bucks a month for it, and realize that it's been wrong. What do you think of the Dudley Boys? We haven't spent a lot of time talking about them. Um, as people, two of my favorite people in the wrestling business, I'm still tight with Bully to this day. Um, Devon, I, you know, I've worked with him in TNA. There's not a not a cooler person that I've worked with in the wrestling business uh, and a nicer person that I've worked with in a business and a, and a more talented person in many respects. I enjoyed those guys from day one. Um, the ECW pay-per-view that I participated in was the first time I really worked with them um, to any degree. And I remember going over the match and suggested finishes and things like that. And I went up to bully and I said, bully, no, what you need to do is is drag me outside and throw me in a dumpster. Now, this wasn't a gimmick dumpster. This wasn't a prop. This was, and I can't remember the name of that that little venue that they used to run in. Uh, Man, where was it? Um, the Manhattan Center. Manhattan Center. No, Hammerstein Ballroom, rather. Hammerstein Ballroom. That's where the event was. And literally, the match took place, and Bully, you know, he said, really, you do that? I said, no, yeah, really, I'll do, let's do that. It'll be it'll be better. The crowd will like it, but it'll be a better finish to the match. It'll look better on TV or pay-per-view. So he, he, you know, the finish of the match came, and literally, he picked me up, and he threw me in a dumpster. No, this wasn't a gimmick dumpster. This was a legit outside-in-the-alley <laughs> working dumpster that he threw me in. You know, and looking back on it now, it was really stupid, you know, because I could have God knows what I could have come out of there with in terms of diseases. But, um, yeah. And from that point on, I think, you know, they saw that I was willing to do whatever I could do in my limited role uh, to make the match better and, 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 and contribute to a better finish. From that point on, whenever I traveled, um, and I think I was the one that introduced uh, Bully to uh, premium tequila. As a matter of fact, to this day, he reminds me of that. I think Silver Patron. Um, it was the first time he had ever had Silver Patron. And we just got along ever since then. And their work is phenomenal. You know, for big guys, the characters were incredibly strong. Their work was great. Like I said, two great guys. Loved working with them. Bullies, you know, I probably talked to Bully more 
you know, than Devon when it, you know, cause we worked together pretty closely in, in TNA, um, as well as Taz, but bully, I probably talked to more than anybody creatively speaking and worked with more closely creatively, uh, really, really love his take on psychology. Um, nobody's ever always right a hundred percent of the time or, or on the money a hundred percent of the time. But I think Bully and I probably more than anybody were were synced up. You know, we the, the light bulbs would go off in our heads simultaneously when we were talking about ideas. I mean, that's how closely we were kind of synced together. So I, I just enjoyed working with him. He's a cool guy. What about oh. um, Undertaker? Um, you were around him quite a bit in your WWE run. Any any memories of working with him or? Anything? Not really. You know, he was. Uh, I, I never really. I probably in the years I worked in WWE as a talent, I probably had a total of three minutes of conversation with him over the course of five years. Uh, you know, he, he 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 did his own thing. He. I, I kept my head down, laid low. I wasn't a social butterfly when I was in WWE. I showed up on, on time, kind of stayed to myself and minded my own business and did everything I could not to get involved in any politics or issues or anything that was going on backstage. So I literally, I'd show up at TV and, and uh, I'd be on my computer or on my phone and, and conducting my own personal business until it was time for me to go to work and then I'd go home. So I never really had a chance to, to talk to Undertaker much. I ran into him in uh, the UK here a couple months ago at, at a uh, convention and probably talked to him more there <laughs> than I did the entire five years that I was in WWE. Super good guy. I've never ran into Undertaker at a convention. No? No. It's, it's, it's too bad. He's a, he's a great guy. Great guy to have around. He was busy all day long. That was uh, my poor attempt at a start. I know. And I was playing along <laughs> with it. I did, yeah, sometimes the best humor is subtle. <laughs> Stone Cold Man here is another level. Uh, and there's going to be an interesting ending to this pay-per-view. I can't wait to get your take on. I'm not going to say it's been as, on the- as fun as the whole uh, Undertaker dressed as Kane thing we, sh- we showed you most recently. But it's pretty good. Good. I've been on the receiving end of that Stone Cold Steve Austin stomp down in the corner. It's intense. I mean, is there a, you know, what's cool about obviously Stone, I mean, Steve Austin was, was a hell of an in-ring performer, you know, a, a technician, a mechanic, whatever, you know, descriptor you want to use but what really helped set him apart is he was such a strong interview and character and had such a presence about him but really he also had and i don't think this gets talked about enough an unbelievable finisher i mean one of the hottest finishers in the business and then you would see you know on the wcw side of things diamond dallas page operate the same way i mean he got over with a tremendous diamond cutter that really uh, sort of took the business by storm. How important is having a really, really strong finisher if you want to be a top guy? Do you think? I think it's incredibly. I mean, it's the, the two things. You, well, 
there's always <laughs> more than two things. You know, you have to you have to be able to have a high work rate if you're working with great people at the very very top. So it's not just your finisher. Your work leading into the finish has to be great. You have to have a real grasp on psychology. But I think at the top of the must-haves, um, and there's a long list of must-haves, but at the very top of the, those must-haves, um, you've got to have a great promo. You've got to be comfortable in a microphone. You've got to be able to find a way to tell your story outside of the ring or at least with a microphone if you're inside of the ring. Number one, because your character isn't complete if you don't have the ability to really connect with the audience in that respect. And then right below that, in my opinion, below that is your finish. Uh, you could have the greatest finisher in the world, but if you if, if you don't have a great promo, eh, you're not going to get to where you want to be. Um, but if you've got those two things at the top, uh, in addition to everything else that it takes, uh, you're destined for greatness. And I think, you know, you, you look at Paige, you know, there's a lot of parallels. I'm not putting them on the equal plane. I'm not trying to suggest that. But if you look at the parallels in the, the way their characters developed, you know, Steve Austin was, like we said earlier in this this podcast, Steve Austin was, you know, stunning Steve Austin. And he was other characters prior to that. Uh, he he got to WWF as a ringmaster. Those those were characters that didn't really fit him. He didn't really find himself until he became himself and turned the, the volume up and became Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I think the same could be said with Diamond Dallas Page. He tried a bunch of different characters. You know, none of them really worked until he just kind of became himself. A blue-collar guy, one of the people, just an average guy that you know was in a great opportunity people can relate to that they they see themselves or they want to see themselves in you you know they're living vicariously through you and so i think if you look at the parallels just in their characters um when they became themselves and turned the volume up the audience really started relate to them now add to the top of that you know they they both had great finishers and they could both cut a promo and I think there's a lot of parallels between those two characters. Kurt Angle in there right now. One of the all-time greats. One of the few who we're going to talk about who never had any sort of run in WCW or uh, really another company at this point. I mean, his first wrestling company was the WWF. And then we know, of course, he had a stop and impact for several years and now back with the company, but Jericho, of course, on the Alliance side of things or on the WWF side of things, he had been to WCW as had Steve Austin, as had the undertaker and believe it or not, even Glenn Jacobs, Kane had, had done some enhancement work there. Really? But yeah, but I did not know that, but Kurt angle never did. If you would have been lucky enough or fortunate enough to have landed Kurt Angle, and I guess I should stop there and ask: Did you ever have a conversation with Kurt Angle prior to him signing with uh, the WWF? No, I, I never did, and I know where the question is probably good. But if I would have had that opportunity, in all honesty, I probably would not have taken advantage of it. In '96, especially, uh, I wouldn't have felt. He didn't sign. To be clear, he didn't. He didn't come on the scene until 99. So you would have had time by then. Of course, WCW was hell in a handbasket. Who knows what would have happened, but, um, it would have been interesting to see what you could have done with him 
on the WCW side of things, but you don't think maybe that we weren't ready. We, we, we would not have been the right. It would have been horrible for Kurt. It would have been a huge mistake for Kurt. And quite honestly, in, in 1999, we were so dysfunctional. I would have not even seen the opportunity had it been presented to me. That's just the honest truth. Uh, I was blinded by dysfunction and chaos and distracted to the point where I wouldn't have seen a great opportunity if it would have landed on my lap. Um, that's just the truth. And I'll, I'll give you another little known fact. Did you know, did you know that long before Brock Lesnar landed in WWF, that Vern Gagne called me up on a Saturday afternoon and said, Eric, you've got to see this kid. I think you should sign him. And I said, well, thank you, Vern. I'll, next time I get to Minnesota, let's get together and we'll go take a look. Not, you're going to miss the boat on this kid. I'm telling you, Eric, you're going to miss the boat. Thank you, Vern. I appreciate the call. Let's get back together again soon. So Vern, Vern Gagne actually tried to introduce me to Brock Lesnar prior to his introduction to WWF. And given the wit and wisdom of that time, I, I, I failed to take advantage of that opportunity. What's crazy to me is to think, you know, like, let's just fantasy book for a minute. Let's go back in time and let's say that, you know, after he turned down the WWF, because originally Kurt turned down the WWF, specifically saying he wouldn't lose. And Bruce Pritchard laughed him out of the office. Uh, so he tried his hand at, at being a, you know, tele, you know, television news sports broadcaster and did some endorsements for pizza joints and things like that in Pittsburgh, but then decided, you know what? I need to really take a stab at this. So he came back and uh, was off to the races and took to it like a fish to water. And it's one of the all time greats now, but what if instead, you know, when you find out that it doesn't work out with the WWF, you make it your mission, your priority. And he was finishing quote unquote wrestling school at the power plant in 1998. Now Goldberg's hot as hell. And you've got an Olympic gold medalist taking on the undefeated streak at Goldberg. That could have been pretty fun. No, can you imagine that? Now, you, yeah, you'd have to play with the timeline quite a bit there. But if you could have gotten Kurt in, so let's assume Kurt would have come into WC. He went, he went to WWE and said, "Okay, but I'm not going to lose." Pritchard laughs him out of the office. He decides to get on a plane and come to Atlanta, where he won the gold medal. I would have had an, uh, certainly would have gotten him a meeting with Ted Turner just to impress the hell out of him. And we would have sat there, and then Kurt would have, after that meeting with Ted and I, Kurt and I would have gone back, and he said, no, look, here's the deal. I said this to Vince McMahon. I'm going to say it to you. I'm not going to lose. I would have said, no problem. We can make that work. Now we would have had two streaks going simultaneously, Goldberg on his streak and, and Kurt Angle on his streak for maybe a year. Wouldn't that have been fun? Unbelievable. It would have been believable, but can you imagine that? I love fantasy booking. I can see why so many dirt cheat writers do it. It's so easy. <laughs> well, and, and it would have been fun too, to see, you know, what the talent pool, you know, like matches with him and Booker T or matches with him and Chris Benoit or, you know, him and Chris Jericho or Ray Mysterio or Eddie Guerrero. There's so many, you had so many talents that we know he's going to have greater matches with or great matches with later, but here on this side, but. I mean, you had all that talent right then. It's just fun to think sort of what if. It's fun to think about. No doubt about that. No doubt about it. 
Can you imagine the? Can you imagine the conversations that would have gone on though? Once the because the, the locker room inevitably hears everything. Can you imagine the conversations that would have taken place with all of the talent when they would have been? Wait, so Bischoff signed this guy by the name of Kurt Angle. Yeah, I know he won a gold gold medal, but this is you know. This is what we do here, and he's not going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't wait to work with him. Can I work with him first? Because I want him to beat me. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Uh, I don't think I would have lived through it. No, there would have been so much that doesn't work for me, brother. Yeah. Well, from everybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. From everybody. What about uh, Rhino? Rhino's a name who... Uh, recently popped up he, he tur- allegedly according to the rumor and innuendo and you know we know how that goes turned down the wwe's offer saying that uh while he would have made more money he felt like he wouldn't have been utilized and he wanted to be more active and instead opted to go to work with impact uh you worked with him a little bit in both places didn't you any good rhino stories you can share with us i feel like we don't talk about him enough the only rhino story I have, and it's not much of a story, is I think we were on, it was in WWE, and we were on our way to Australia, and we had a like a six-hour layover in Hawaii, or an eight-hour layover. It was a short layover. It wasn't overnight, but it, it was long enough where they got us a hotel room just to rest, and, and Rhino and I shared a room in Hawaii. And that's when I found out that he grew up in Detroit and was a Michigan guy. And we liked the same music and went to a lot of the same places. And not that we knew some of the same people while we're in Detroit respectively, but uh, we realized we had much more in common than we ever thought we did. So there you go. Boring as it may be, that's my only rhino story. I shared a room with him in Waikiki. Sounds very romantic. (laughs) Jock Cuddle? No, we no, we didn't cuddle, not 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 there. We, we got you know we got familiar on the plane and sat next to each other and chatted, but no, there was no cuddling. I'm not a cuddler. Well, well I mean, you, you said you got familiar on the plane. You, Mile High Club. No, you dipshit. <laughs> Just talk more. Just. <laughs> I can't help it. This is the first time in a long time. Blue Chew is not a sponsor this week. And I, uh, I keep looking for Blue Chew transitions, but there's nowhere to go. So uh, Blue Chew, if you're listening, uh, come you on. You missed out. You missed out. I have gonna, a- we could have had a Blue Chew moment in Hawaii with Rhino. <laughs> So chaos here ringside and, uh, looks like, uh, one of the announce tables is about to get, uh, well, you know, you think after all these years, they'd beef those damn things up a little bit. You can take them apart. Like a display at Walmart. I'm going to remember this when, when you guys start exploding <laughs> tables on SmackDown. Well, hey, wait a minute. You said, uh, have you seen the, the new thing on the independence, by the way, that, uh, they're not using tables as much anymore. Now they're using doors. I have not seen that. Yeah. It's a, what, what, what's the logic behind where, first of all, where do they get doors? Well, it's probably like a home Depot or a Lowe's or something like that. So they reach under the ring and there's just like a random freaking door under the ring. Is it really that weirder than there being random kendo sticks under the ring? 
Well, that's a little weird too. But even the ladders. I mean, now I was watching that you know with the Jeff Hardy Rob Van Dam match, and I, I always ask myself, which is stupid. You know, at this point, this is it's sports entertainment. It's fantasy. It's scripted. It's it is. I know where is. you're going though. Why is it under there? Why is a, a ladder under the ring? Now you could make the argument that rigging or whatever. You know, during the course of the day, you know, if you've got to be able to get up into the ring and somehow, you know, because that, that light, you know, the rigging, the light rig, you know, actually the beginning of the day is down close to the ring when they're hanging the lights and tweaking the lights and all that kind of stuff. So you can kind of let yourself believe that there is a reason for a very tall ladder to be under the ring. I can, I can, I can let that happen in my head without feeling dumb. But kendo sticks and garbage can lids don't fit. That doesn't fit in some, you know, pie pans. Okay. Pie, pie pans, pans. I'll give you now a trash can. I could argue that, well, you know, just in case, you know, the announcers need to throw some stuff away or okay, security I'll, I'll needs buy that. to, I'll, yeah, buy, I'll I, buy it. Okay. I'll buy a garbage can. Okay. Now convince me there's a reason for, for there to be a wooden door under the ring. I mean, I, I think that falls in the kendo stick category. Like they can't, like there's no re it shouldn't be. I agree. I agree. But I've got this too, the same thing with tables. And I will say this, I think if I were a wrestler just, and again, I know, you know, we're sort of poking fun tongue in cheek, but you saw that the table was set up there in the corner and then Rhino just starts walking around very slowly. I would not do that in front of a table. I, I've seen enough wrestling to know this is a bad call for me. Yep. I'd avoid him like the plague. I wonder wow. if, uh. Not one, but two announce tables down here. Here's what I mean. Like, no, I'm not walking in front of that. Oh, there you go. Well, you ever have any in, in ring stuff with any of these characters? Uh, very little with Kurt, uh, bully. I've already, or Bubba, I've already talked about Booker T and I have never, I don't think we've ever done anything in the ring. I don't know. I don't who, think I've ever, I don't think I've ever made contact with Booker in the ring. Who was the quote unquote stiffest guy you worked with? Like who, who uh, really laid it in? Nobody, nobody. I've, I've always been really fortunate in that respect. Um, trying to, I'm trying to think if there was ever Shane McMahon. Take that go. back. There you go. Shane. Yeah. Shane McMahon. Yeah. Yep. The, the setup that I did when I storyline wise broke into the McMahon family home and made out with his mom. Um, I think it was the very next TV. It was going in, it was in August. It was going into August. Cause I was on my way to Sturgis that night. Bill Goldberg and I were both in WWF and we were leaving TV on a private jet and flying to Sturgis. And my last, my segment in the ring was the last segment. And I had a scene with Shane McMahon where he got into it and confronted me for breaking into his mother's house. And, ooh, this is this is interesting. Finish here. Shane knocking his dad out with a belt. Kurt Angle taking it to him. But I was the last scene in the ring and involved Shane McMahon. And he punched me in the mouth and split my lip, loosened my two front teeth. And then... The following, and they were implants, by the way, that, so that made it even more interesting. And then the pay-per-view we did in August in Phoenix, I think it was SummerSlam, where he had me on a table, 
as we're talking so check about this tables. Out. Look, it, Steve Austin just kicked Kurt Angle in the head. And now whoa. he's giving him a stunner. What the hell is going on? Now he's taking Booker see. T and putting him on top and demanding that Mike Kyoto make the count. So he obviously got over the broken hand issue. Clearly he put that behind him at this point. I love you for that. I don't know if you're paying attention, but Steve Austin is now part of the Alliance. He has defected from the world wrestling federation. He's now with WCW and ACW. A little too late, Steve. Where were you in 98 when that move would have mattered? How <laughs> <laughs> about that guy yeah, knew too? Better late than never brother, but come on. That guy in the crowd knew he <laughs> held up a sign. Austin three sixteen says Steve just stole out. How about that? So there Ooh. you go. Big celebration. Now with Vince McMahon, who he joined at WrestleMania 17, but instead with Shane and Stephanie McMahon. And of course, Paul Heyman. That's some pretty good booking though. You got to admit that that was good booking. That's some cre- That's a, that's a good story right there. Well, and you got to think it's because that Alliance side is, is sort of short on, on star power. Since we don't have so many of the ECW and WCW talent, let's, let's slide in another tippy top guy. We don't have a sting. We don't have a Goldberg. Let's, let's just slide Austin over there and get off to the races. And there, and, and there's great backstory there with, with Paul and Steve. So it kind it, it makes sense. It's plausible. It could happen. There's, there's enough meat on the bone to be believable and backstory to be believable. I always love when that happens. Uh, I like it. So overall, you know, it's your first time watching the invasion pay-per-view. What'd you think? Overall, I think it was done really well overall, given the limitations and the parameters and what they had to work with. I think it was really well done. The packages set up the story really, really well. Would it, could it have been better with all the aforementioned talent that's not there? Of course it could have, but given what they had to work with and the timing of it all, especially with this finish that we just saw, I really liked it. I'd be interesting to go back and, and you know, where did it go from here kind of thing? Um, what did they do with that story going forward? But based on everything that I saw here, I, I liked it. Well, we hope you liked this episode. Eric got to watch Invasion for the very first time. It was, uh, it was pretty fun for what it was. And, uh, we're looking forward to bringing you more new content next week and dispelling some more of the rumor and innuendo next week will not be a watch along. We're going to be back at you in a more traditional setting, uh, but we appreciate you getting in a time machine and going back to visit something that happened on this very day, 18 years ago. God, time flies, man. It's weird because in 2001 Bischoff's not in the wrestling business and here we are in 2019. And you're at the Raw Reunion tonight. Have fun tonight, buddy. All right. I'll give you a shout after it's over and tell you how much fun I had. All right. Check us out online at 83 Weeks on social media. He is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.